All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this is our 40th episode of Worthy. We've somehow gotten to 40 episodes of the main series through 40 Best Picture winners. I've survived talking through at least 40 hours with John. Uh, and neither of us are bored with each other yet. So pretty well, when we kill each other. Yeah. Or, yeah. No. <laughs> <Probably> <laughs> never. Never, John. Never. And uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, 40 is a huge number. It, it feels... It, I don't even know what it truly feels like. It, it just feels like concrete. Like, yeah, we did it. We did something 40 times. And really 40 plus times when you include the re- the nomination reaction episodes, the top tens of the years, holiday specials, you know, what whatever you can think of. You know, we've done that. But in terms of the main series, we've gone through 40 Best Picture winners. And uh, it's very exciting. And for those who have listened or may not know, uh, we go through every like decade of that so every time it's a, a film year ends in a seven that's a new decade of the oscars because the oscars started in 1927 and this episode we're talking about the 1967 best picture winner so we always give out the worthies is what i think i called it last time of <laughs> awards for the movies that won best picture or from movies from those years and what we think should win those awards i think we played a little bit looser this time around with, with some of the awards we gave out uh, really more specifically one category, which uh, we will get to pretty quickly. So, yeah, so we give out awards from best editing, best cinematography, writing, acting. Like, whoever we thought out of the best picture winner should get more awards. That's what we're here for. So, John, before we jump into the worthies, any thoughts on 40th episode? Thoughts on, I don't know, what, what you were doing today? How, how was your day? Was your day good? <laughs> My day was good. I'm uh, happy to be middle-aged. Uh, Worthy <laughs> is officially <laughs> middle-aged. And, yeah, it's crazy. We've done over 50 episodes in total, but this is our official 40th episode. It feels great. It does feel like a kind of body of work at this point now, and it does feel like a true journey that we've gone on through the past four decades of film. And it's crazy. On one hand, it feels like we've just started yesterday but on the other hand it feels like we've been doing this for like a decade you know (laughs) and it's really amazing to see how the not only the industry has changed but I think around the time now and especially watching now that we're seeing the award show and we're seeing it in color and I'm starting to see like familiar faces right I'm starting to see actors that like are still around now for us like for instance Justin Hoffman uh, for this year for the graduate like that's a very familiar face that we grew up with but he was very much, you know, the older man for us, like the grandpa or like the the really wise older man. Yeah. And here we see him in 1967 as a little kid, like literally just yeah. post-grad, like someone who's like even almost a decade younger than we are now. And it's really interesting to see just these familiar faces that are now, you know, what we are used to in Hollywood. So it's been a great journey. I'm doing well. I had a pretty damn good day and I'm ready <laughs> to jump into our worthies. Yes, let's jump into the worthies, and we're going to start with best song, a new category we are introducing <laughs> for this uh, for this episode. And this is that one category where I think we strayed a little too off course in terms of films that won best picture. And there weren't really many films that won best picture that also won best song, and that goes kind of for the entirety of the Oscars. So played a little loose, 
And my best song from the years of 1958 to 1967 was Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> I, I, it's like one of the classic like best song songs. It's very beautiful. I love the context of it in the movie. It's just you can listen to that song like any time of the day, and it just feels like a natural like love song. It, it, it's just so simplistic. And uh, yeah, so that's my best song of the last decade of movies that we were talking about, John. What's your best song for the years 58 to 67? I didn't even think about that until you just said it. Like, yeah, were we supposed to specifically pick it from yeah. the songs from the Best Picture winners? Because I took it the same way that you did, that best song would be the past 10 best song winners. Which one is your favorite? So in that case, it's Call Me Irresponsible from Papa's Delicate Condition, James Van Heusen, and lyrics by Sammy Kane. Uh, but... It's been made famous by, you know, Bobby Darin, Call Me Irresponsible. It's such an iconic, like, you know, crooner, swinger, 60s song. It's one of those songs that, yeah, it's almost 60 years old at this point, but it's something that still heavily played. You'll hear it, like, constantly at weddings, formal events, and it's a song that's kind of stayed with us, and I think that's a really significant thing for a best song is not only it's one of the best songs in the films of that year, but it's a song that's kind of can stick with us and continue forward the same way that I kind of look at the best film, a film that should still be just as good now, a hundred years later. So my choice is call me irresponsible. If we did it from the actual best pictures this year, I would probably go with in the heat of the night by Ray Charles, which is a wonderful song and a very potent, powerful song uh, for the film. Yeah. I think we could have like, I think that would have been a good choice. Uh, You know, I kind of went with Academy rules where I didn't allow like non-original music for the film, so like eliminated <laughs> all the West Side Story music, all the Sound of Music music from a uh, competition for the worthy. So yeah, I still think we have good picks. But best art direction, I took Ben Hur. I went to Edward C. Carfano, William A. Horning, and Hugh Hunt, uh, all uh, doing various roles for Ben Hur. This movie, I thought in turn when I was looking at everything, like my runner-up for this was Lawrence of Arabia, and that felt more of like the like that like that felt like really authentic and true itself but then i thought about it in terms of well what in terms of scale and how much like work was put into it and like ben-hur like we don't give enough credit like for really what it is like the fact they built like so much of that set they made this huge epic film it 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 was an unbelievable feat and everything feels like you know it's all made specifically for the movie it's just it feels so real and right so yeah ben-hur gets that art direction award for me just because of how huge and grand the scale was for what they were able to accomplish and pull off and show in that movie. Yeah, I think that's a great choice. I think that was one of those epics that I was really expecting a lot from, but it was kind of middling for me. So that's nice to see that you picked it for art direction and it's, it's famous. I mean, it's still iconic seeing that chariot race, but I went with something a little bit different. And I went with West Side Story from 1961, production designed by Boris Levin. My runner-up was Lawrence of Arabia for that brilliant art direction by just, you know, having them build all those deserts. That was crazy incredible. Yeah, the fact that right? they combed the desert. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time, combing the desert. But no, West Side Story, I love the primary colors. I love the way they try to explore the city. I love the use of the real city as well as the sets they use to clearly represent the some of the streets, some of the like back lot sets where they kind of meet for the famous fight. And I even love the, the actual 
uh, production design of each individual song. I mean, I think it does a really great job of showing off those really great primary colors that we're used to in a lot of these 60s musicals. And yeah, I mean, it's just vibrant. It fits the mood of New York and it fits the music of West Side Story very, very well. Yeah, I agree. I think that the set decoration uh, in our direction, that film, it really it, it brings the, the stage play to life without taking too much of the stage play out of it. Like It still feels like a true musical. It still feels like it's truly put on a stage, but it's in the city and the streets of New York. So I yeah, I agree. It's Everything is placed properly for each number and some of the colors in that movie like really pops out. So not a bad choice at all. But moving on to best score. I picked Lawrence of Arabia, Maurice Jure. I mean, just like, I, I there's really nothing better than that. I, I mean, this is a decade where we have Sound of Music and West Side Story. Uh, so the fact that, like, that those get passed over by Lawrence of Arabia, I think kind of shows, like, how good that score is uh, that was put into that film. So it's truly iconic. If you've never listened to Lawrence of Arabia, I think you can, like, get a true feel for what the the film is. What is trying to say this like fantastical look into the desert? It, it's truly like whoa! It's grand, it's epic, and uh, it's very like Star Wars. Like you can tell, like John Williams took heavy inspiration from it. So, Lawrence of Arabia best score for the Worthies. John, what did you pick though for best score? I also went with Lawrence of Arabia. <gasps> I I totally agree with you. I think I think it's kind of almost a cop out to pick a musical, and I, like you said, a lot of the music comes from pre existing. Um, work or you know the Broadway musicals or what have you but I learned of Arabia much like Gone with the Wind the score has really stuck with me and it's one of those music it's one of those scores where you almost are reminded of the film moments of the film when you hear the music and it brings you back to the character's point of view in a way and I love it I mean it's so grand I think describing it and relating it almost to Star Wars is perfect because it is very John Williams-esque and it's grand and each kind of character has their kind of own theme that's played and it's just powerful. It's a really powerful score score that I still just like will hear sometimes in my head, uh, which anything's an earworm and especially a song or music with no lyrics becoming an earworm, I think is a huge, huge praise for something that for music in particular. I mean, if it can stick with you and just be like present in your mind, there's something magical about that, the way your mind remembers certain things. And yeah, it's such a great score. What else is there to say? There's not really much else to say besides let's just move on to best editing. And that one I picked the episode that we're going to be and the movie we're going to be talking about in this episode right now is in the heat of the night to Hal Ashby. Uh, there are, I think a lot of great candidates for the best film editing of this past decade. My runner up was West side story, but winner in the heat of the night and without getting too much into the film, it's truly just because of the tension that the Ashby builds throughout the movie like especially the opening there's the you know we have yeah we have the ray charles song it's like really great and poppy but you just feel this like insidious like nature there's something going on underneath and that obviously gets revealed in the beginning and then it just gets you know rolled out more and more in the movie and there are a couple of chase scenes they're just really like well edited like dialogue scenes that are quick cuts that get crazy angles and it, it feels like so well paced for the film like that movie is an hour 50 minutes and it flies by very quickly there's a lot they pack in there but it's paced very well and i feel like that has to do a lot of the editing so that was my pick for the last decade but john what did you pick for best film editing 
Yeah, that was a great choice. In fact, I'm like hitting myself right now. Like, damn, that is such a great choice. I should have done that <laughs> because it is. It's amazing editing. It's really great. We'll talk about it more. But I went with my previous winner, which is Lawrence of Arabia from 1962. And, you know, I think a lot of people can look at that film and see how long it is and be like editing. Like they needed to cut out more of that movie. Are you kidding me? Best editing. But obviously editing is a lot more than that. We've talked about that before. But there's something about the patience and the plotting of the editing that Lawrence of Arabia has, and it's letting you soak into the vistas, knowing how long to hold on our protagonists and how long that we should just kind of gaze into the endless abyss of the sand. I think there's something very magical about that, and the tension that he builds throughout that film, and especially the epic long shots of, of the desert and someone approaching on Camelback and just you know, not knowing what's going to happen. And I think a lot of that is to the credit of obviously the cinematography, the great performances, but very much the editing and the way they can kind of build up sequences. And a lot of the action is really incredible in Lawrence of Arabia. And a lot of that I think is due to the editing and the great moments that they choose to show. Uh, but Heat of the Night is, is brilliant. I love the way they use the close-ups. That was a great choice. But yeah, let's move on to best cinematography. Yeah, so best cinematography, th- this one... The winner is obvious, but the choices are, are it's very hard because I could have went with <laughs> a Ben-Hur, which has an amazing chariot sequence that like some of the shots in that were so ahead of its time, like stuff that if even done today would be like, oh my God, I can't believe like, they were able to do that and capture that. So that was a contestant. West Side Story has a ton of great cinematography in it, the dancing, the so many different cuts angles just the shot choices incredible sound of music another great and well shot film i would even i'll even go on this limb john and say that even a film like Gigi had some in okay <laughs> cinematography where yeah you know, wow I'll, I'll even go on that out that limb because of like how strong this decade was in term, terms of look the apartment another one but the obvious winner is lawrence of arabia I mean, that's just one of the best shot films ever made. Like, it, ha- it has to be top five in terms of importance, scale, epicness, the actual just like almost like can- paint to canvas feel of it. Like some of the shots where they're uh, and, and the cinematographers done by Freddie A. Young uh, and some of the shots that they they do of like these like really wide shots of the desert it almost feels like stuff is like stacked up on each other that like it's so far and distant that it's like smushed together and it, it, it's incredible. You, like you cannot, it, it's like, there's no words to really describe it because it truly makes this desert feel like an alien planet. So out of this world, like how could something this grand be, be on this earth type of thing. So it, it's obvious Lawrence Arabia, best cinematography for me, but John, what did you pick? I also went with Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, I totally agree with you. I don't think I need to add more to that conversation. I think, you know, we can watch endless amount of videos about the cinematography of Lawrence of Arabia. But Freddie A. Young, he's someone that's won previously. And he's a name that's been around for quite a while. I think if I remember correctly, he was the one who, like, is credited as inventing the helicopter shot, I think I remember. Um, but yeah, he's, he's such an iconic figure for film and cinematographers, but I want to also talk about, uh, my runners up, which is both in the heat of the night. Cause I love the cinematography of the film, which we'll talk about more, but also Tom Jones. Ooh. And I know that comes out of nowhere. You Does. wouldn't expect it. 
but I think it's the 60s and we're experimenting a lot with cinematography and I think we see a lot of that from In the Heat of the Night as well and Tom Jones I love the way it it we talked about how it's like a very muddy film and it's kind of ugly and and that could definitely come from the transfer how the film was kind of saved and digitally preserved um, but in terms of the physical use of the camera, a lot of handheld camera work, a lot of like insanely tight and huge uh, contrasty images that uh, focus on a lot of like extreme close-ups. And I think you see that as well in the heat of the night, like these extreme close-ups of small objects. And it just uses a lot of techniques that I just don't think we've are really used to, you know, coming from the fifties and having things so static and it's mainly just about like panning and tilting when Tom Jones really just has the balls to use helicopters to put cameras on horseback. You know, it does a very experimental job, whether that fully, you know, justifies how it looks at times in terms of things being out of focus, things being very shaky for what we're used to now, you know, it's not perfect, but I think putting your neck out there and, and making something that's different and unusual and different of the, for the time is it should be honored and should be recognized. So Tom Jones, my runner up. Fascinating. I was shocked <laughs> when I saw you put that down, but I get the reasoning for it. Moving on to best screenplay. This one went to the apartment to Billy Wilder and I a L diamond. The apartment screenplay is one of the, wittiest funniest saddest dramatic angriest loving (laughs) and just all around like great screenplay it's truly fantastic it's a knockout it's a screenplay that i think could be put into a book i think people like people who want to be screenwriters should know this screenplay back in in front i mean i spent a ton of time talking about billy wilder's you know essentially his like guideline to like writing a good screenplay when we talked about the apartment and literally the apartment is like that document like those like 10 steps that he gives it's all there so study that screenplay it's truly fantastic it there there's so many words i can say about it but i'll just let the words that in the film itself speak for it and just if you haven't seen the apartment yet i urge you to go see it um so john what did you pick for best screenplay for the last decade I also picked The Apartment, Billy Wilder and I.L. Diamond. I mean, I said this is a perfect film for me. I gave it my only 100 that I've ever given for a worthy film here. And I think you really hit it on the head. And I'll go as far as saying that I think you could even translate this script. Even just Google Translate everything. Even let all the errors of the translation go through. And I think this would still be an amazing script in any language. And I think this would still be something that's digestible. It's understandable. It's relatable. And it doesn't matter where you're from. Everyone has worked a job where they feel like they're being mistreated, misused, or just taken advantage of. And I think anyone can relate to that. And and anyone can relate to the highs and lows that you experience of that. Or even the highs of like, you love the people you work with to a degree, but you hate your boss or the circumstances that you're stuck in. And I think the apartment's just phenomenal. I think it's it's a screenplay that is just it's too good to be true. To be honest, it's it's honestly so amazing. It's so personal yet broad enough that it, anyone can I think really enjoy it. So totally great choice. My runners up, and you did mention your runner up of Lawrence of Arabia, which is a great choice. And I also really love the script to our film today in the heat of the night. Yeah, I think there are again like a lot of great choices. Lawrence of Arabia was right there, but the apartment just. It edges it out. So, and it's great. 
truly one of the best screenplays ever written. Moving on to Best Supporting Actress. This one I had kind of an easy time with, but also a frustrating time with because there weren't as many Best actress, best Supporting Actresses in the Best Picture winners that we saw that I was into and also just winners in general. So I was very discouraged. But I went with Rita Moreno from West Side Story for her role as Anita. She It's one of the kind of classic performances now. She gives it her all in this she her singing is great her her dancing is beautiful uh it's another another role uh it's a film that has won multiple oscars for the role as anita recently went to ariana the boys last year for her role in west side story playing it so the character is all there it's very easy to sink your teeth into and to perform but john what did you give best supporting actress to i also went with me rita moreno and you know I just I think it's it's weird how little supporting actresses we even see. And it's bizarre that we've seen so many films without like strong side characters that are women. I don't really know what that is. I don't know why that is and obviously it's because there's just not enough films made about women and I don't think any really you correct me if I'm wrong other than Gone with the Wind. I mean, how many other films are really female led? And, you know, out of the 40 films that we've seen, there's really not many. I can really only think of Gone with the Wind, and I, you could maybe look at... You can look at Rebecca. Rebecca's yeah, another. I was just about to say Hitchcock's Rebecca, maybe, but I think people might even argue with that if she's the main character or not. I mean, Mrs. Miniver, I mean, she's kind of yeah. there. Again, that's still kind of a little bit arguable, but yeah. Yeah. So I, it's just very limited in terms of yeah. our options for this as well, and... And it also becomes kind of tricky whether it's like, well, you could say maybe Shirley MacLaine from The Apartment is Best Supporting Actress, but is she, she's kind of like the female lead of that film. Yeah, so, she is. So I went with Rita Moreno. It's a great performance. It's really iconic. I mean, it's great that she got to also come back to the West Side Story uh, past couple of years. Um, that was really sweet, but it's a really great performance. It's a really strong character, and it's a really conflicted character. And, yeah, we just need more supporting actresses i hope we get that moving forward from here moving on to best supporting actor this one was incredibly easy for me (laughs) and um yeah if you didn't listen to our episode of lawrence arabia then maybe you wouldn't see why it's so easy but i went with omar sharif as sharif ali from lawrence arabia he is just electric coming off that screen he is as sharif ali he's this antithesis to Lawrence, but he's also his best friend and his pal. And it's, it, there's so many like dynamic aspects to his character. His whole entrance is otherworldly. Him running uh, in the mirage, running on the camelback, like the writer, like the black writer on the horizon is coming in, killing the guy instantly. Just bam, I'm right here in this movie. And he's, he got, it's a hundred percent throughout. So I love Omar Sharif. I think he's a great actor. So, I thought he should have won Best Supporting Actor at the time. I still think he should have won. He should have won. And for the worthies, I'll give it to him. My runner-up. So this is another category where I was thinking about it really hard. I was like, who out of the Best Picture winners? Like, who are some of my options? So Omar Sharif, automatic. But then my my second option was Stephen Boyd playing Masala and Ben Hur uh, was not nominated for that role. I'm not sure why. He gives a great performance. He's he's this villain. He's he's completely vicious. You hate him for a lot of the movie, and he has this great end to his character in the film. So, another just really good supporting performance. Um, but John, who did you pick for best supporting actor? So, 
because I didn't want to repeat too much. We've already repeated some of our picks, obviously. Which is okay. Some are easier. Which is okay. Some are easier. I, I cheated. I think a lot of people <laughs> would say that Christopher Plummer as Baron Von Trapp is the actor in that film, not a supporting actor, but I didn't want to say Omar Sharif again. He is phenomenal in Lawrence of Arabia, but I didn't want to repeat and do the same person. So I went with Christopher Plummer because I love his performance in The Sound of Music. He is... He's very electric and in a very different way than we're used to. He's so stern and kind of boring at first. And not even just boring as a character. He's, his performance is kind of boring because you don't really realize the subtleties behind it. And then the crack in his surface when he really starts to fall for our lead character, Maria, it's then you kind of reveal like there's so much more to this guy. Breaking off with his marriage, going, getting back into singing and loving his family again the way he used to with his wife. There's just a lot to this character, and I think Christopher Plummer does a lot with it. it. He takes a character that it seems like from the behind the scenes and the descriptions, he didn't really fully understand what the sound of music was and didn't really understand maybe musicals in general. But he does a great job playing a straight man in what is a very non-straight film, a very bright, colorful, and loud film. And I think Christopher Plummer does a great job of grounding us, the viewers, into this world. Moving on to Best Actress, I chose, from The Sound of Music, Julie Andrews as Maria. Uh, She's great. She's absolutely great. I love how she she moves around the screen, like all of her dance movements, her singing, her facial expressions. She's beautiful, and she really commands the screen in this way that isn't like, I know people may look at me like, oh, it's just like a childish role. Like, even The Sound of Music could be looked at as more of a, a kiddie kind of movie than 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 other musicals. But I look at her performance as someone who's very who knows the character well, who is in the psychosis of it, who is not who's willing just to like give it her all and just like jump around, roll around the grass, get dirty, um, and have fun, which is what Maria is supposed to embody in that film. Uh, so yeah, Julie Andrews gets best actress for me. My runner up was Shirley MacLaine for the apartment. It, it kind of went back and forth. I mean, Shirley MacLaine gives a, a great performance. It's, it's depressing, you know, her character and it's very emotionally tied to that. But I just love the, like the expression that Julie Andrews gives. And to me, like for a performance, it just really pops out, uh, more to me. So that's my winner. But John, who did you pick for best actress? Well, that is a wonderful choice for Julie Andrews as Maria from The Sound of Music. That's my runner-up, but I went a little bit different. Again, some might say I'm cheating. I went Best Actress for Shirley MacLaine from The Apartment. And I love MacLaine's performance in this movie. It is really electric. She plays this kind of misunderstood mistress, someone who you wouldn't really expect to have this level of depth in the film. So not only is it a very well-written character, she plays it in a classic, like, cutesy Hollywood American film way where at first like she's oh simple lovable girl like the girl that our protagonist is going to end up with and because the script is so good she's so much more complex than that but also because Shirley MacLaine is so damn good she's so great at delivering these like fun quirky lines I mean she has the responsibility for basically ending this film and she does such a great job it's such an iconic ending to this movie and she plays this character who you may not always root for someone who is almost against our, our lead character for the majority of the film, but you still understand her actions. You still understand why she's doing this. And she does such a great job of balancing that 
and and then completely flipping and it's on his head and then falling in love with bud by the end of the movie and what a wonderful performer she's just kind of really electric for this film but it's a great choice picking julie andrews i love the way she kind of embodies maria and she really you know shows that in her body movements yeah and there's nothing wrong with picking mclean i think it's kind of one or the other both are great performances so not an easy choice to make speaking of not easy choices moving on to best actor and i told myself <laughs> I, re- I, re- I i told myself when uh when my, when i was like oh yeah 40th episode we we have to start thinking of winners and you know thinking about all the movies and i'm like i'm like you know what i'm not gonna do i'm not gonna snub peter o'toole <laughs> i snubbed peter o'toole <laughs> how dare you how i like, dare i I would have never guessed that ever. Yeah, I I really wanted to pick Lawrence. I really wanted to pick Peter O'Toole and and this grand performance he gives. It, it's truly iconic. But Jack Lemon, man, Jack <laughs> Lemon as CC Bud Baxter in the apartment. Wow, <laughs> just wow. It it it's a physical. It's an emotional performance. It's comedic. It's so. It, it's so honest and pure and it's like when people like i love when actors talk about like looking for that pure and authentic moment like that one moment of reality well jack levin does that for the entire film he he's truly authentic to that character it it's I, it's one of the be- better performances that i think that we've seen so sorry peter o'toole i tried to help <laughs> you and give you a worthy but i'm i'm giving it to jack levin Peter O'Toole said all the accolades. He's such an iconic actor. Everybody loves him. But, but who really Oscars. Talks? He never yeah. got an Oscar. That, that's true. That's true. I won't say he's that, you know, filled with accolades. But who, do people really even know who Jack Lemmon is these days? If you ask anyone even in our age group, and especially not someone who's 18 and under, they're not going to know who Jack Lemmon is. And that's a crime. That is a true crime. Huge because crime. this man... He's a wonderful actor because he can do everything. And that's really why The Apartment is so great. Like you described it, it it kind of handles every emotion. And I love films like that. And I love characters that can go through the ups and downs and that they can perfectly portray those like Jack Lemmon does as C.C. Bud Baxter. I think we get a little bit of a, a cheat here because we get his voiceover. So we get to know his character immediately. We get to kind of know his his cadence and his kind of like loves and passions in the world. But he is such a complex character who just slowly gets kind of broken down and down. And he has to do everything, like I said, in this film. He has to show the highs, the quick humor that he's so used to doing, that he has presented in front of the Academy and the nominations and the nominees for the Best Picture winner. And when he's hosted the Oscars, he's been, you know, a great host and has been really great at, you know, balancing comedy and drama. And I think The Apartment is a perfect showcase for Jack Lemmon. He is so damn funny, charming, and just endearing in this movie. And I think that really goes from most of his performance. He's just a phenomenal actor. And you made the right choice, Peter O'Toole. I'm so sorry, but people love you, man. You'll be okay. We love you. (laughs) Moving on to Best Director. This one was another tough cat. A lot of great choices. There was some obvious ones you put up there some ones you're like okay don't really need to consider that but it's david lee for lawrence of arabia he crafts this this world this fantasy and story so well i mean he demands perfection and and what he delivers is i think just beyond perfection in in a film it's 
it's one of those directing performances and and moments that directors today are still influenced by. I mean, when you have a guy like Spielberg who's gushes over this uh, directing and and David Lean as a whole. Uh, yeah, so I, th- I think of one of the best of the modern cinema is like, yeah, that that's that's the influence for me. That that's the movie that I want to be like. I think tells a lot about what David Lean did and he, what he has done throughout his entire career, like the movies that he put up. I mean, the Lords of Arabia is to the scale of a Lord of the Rings to a Titanic, like beyond epic. It's movies that are like, how the hell is this getting made? How the hell is someone managing this? And putting the vision to reality. Uh, yeah, so David Lean gets my uh, Best Director Award. My runner-up was Billy Wilder for The Appointment. Uh, it's subtle, but it's still like truly great masterclass of work of filmmaking. Uh, but just David Lean edges it out. Uh, John, who did you give Best Director for? So those are two great choices. Can't disagree with you. I think David Lean is maybe one of my favorite directors that we've kind of come across. And along with Billy Wilder, I think Wilder and Lean are the two directors that We've watched their films, and I just felt like I need to watch every single one of their movies. And I don't know if I feel that way exactly about my choice, but my choice went with the director who had two Best Picture winners in this past decade, and someone who we probably won't see much of. Their their career kind of transitions out of the 60s, and not even in a bad way. They worked on some really incredible films and really notable films, and I'm talking about Robert Wise, director of West Side Story and The Sound of Music. And I really was thinking about him for this choice because I love intros and outros to movies. I love a really great beginning and I love a really great ending. And I think Robert Wise does a great job of introducing us to the world of New York City and the West Side Story and does a great job of introducing us to the hills and the mountains of The Sound of Music and does a great job of leaving us in the West Side Story and leaving us in The Sound of Music and making us kind of think about the journey that we went on. Not only that, he really made two beautiful, amazing movies that are musicals, that are bright, colorful, exuberant. They make you want to go out and explore the world and, you know, sing songs. And, you know, how can you how can you not like that? You know, like a little happiness and joy in your life. And from what we've read and the history that we've seen behind these two movies, there were a lot of challenges with the West Side Story, uh, with The Sound of Music. There was a lot of challenges just making musicals, especially in the 60s where we have not a lot of resources to kind of play back things immediately and see the takes that we did, make sure the sync isn't matching up and everything like that. I'm working on a music video right now, and I know just from a stupid little three-minute song how difficult it is just to be able to like sync up dialogue and singing and and how to make something that's even remotely interesting besides just listening to a song so then expanding that with 12 songs or however many songs there are in West Side Story and The Sound of Music extremely challenging while also trying to tell a story and I think those two films are perfect examples of how a musical can use the music to guide it but also still still tell a great story with really great visuals and that's all I ever want from a musical. So I went with Robert Wise. And not a bad pick. There are some really great uh, directorial moments in the last decade and plenty to choose from. So I, I like that choice. I think it's a, I think it's a bold choice. And, and uh, yeah, I like it a lot. But moving on to Best Picture, I just want to read the 10 films that we are considering for the Best Picture. So this is movies that won Best Picture from 1958 
1967, starting out with Gigi, Ben-Hur, The Apartment, West Side Story, Lawrence of Arabia, Tom Jones, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, A Man for All Seasons, and In the Heat of the Night. So my pick for the, the fourth worthy Best Picture winner goes to The Apartment, uh, Billy Wilder's film. Uh, the film overall, uh, John gave it 100, and I was shocked when he did that. <laughs> I thought I would be the first person to give 100 to any of these movies. Uh, I've teased I've given four movies uh, 100s in on the Best Picture list, and the, the Apartment was not one of them. I think I gave it a 97, which is still like a great score. Like It's, it's one of the best films. It was really hard to choose between The Apartment and Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia has a lot going for it, especially for... A film lover like me who loves the epic movies, who loves scale, who who fell in love with the desert, fell in love with the score, the acting, the cinematography, as everything for it. But it's like almost that La La Land Moonlight debate where you have the pizzazz and the fun and cool things where you can do a film. But then you also have this artistic moment where you can truly get into the human condition and connect to something that may not be exactly in your purview of life that may not be what you're experiencing but what others experience what others deal with and how they handle it and and it's some of the darkness but also some of the happiest moments in life so the apartment captures all of that and more uh so that was my best picture winner of the last decade john what did you pick for your best picture winner i think you're right on the money just like you said this is my only 100 so far not much really comes close you have the occasional Bridge on the River Kwai, which is out of our out of our choices here, but that I gave a 97. Uh, other films like The Best Years of Our Lives is a 95, a 94 to The Lost Weekend. So I've given some films in the 90s, Gone with the Wind a 90, but I haven't really felt the need to make the statement that there's something as a perfect film. I think a lot of people would even hear that and just like you know, blow some smoke out of their nose and just say, that's ridiculous. Like no piece of art is perfect. And I think there's an argument there. That's for, that's definitely true in a way. But to me, this is a subjective feeling of perfection is there's not a single thing that I would change about the apartment. I think it is such a perfect film when it comes to the script, the themes and the story that it's trying to tell. It's a very simple story about a man being used by his bosses and how he can basically get out of this abusive relationship. It's really simple, but it does such a great job of taking us on a journey through this person's life in such a relatable way that I think... I don't really think I've seen done in such an accurate way to describe something as mundane as an office job and, and kind of show it in this like grand way to make it almost feel as if it's the Lawrence of Arabia, to make it feel as huge and grand and endless like they showed the office or the, the park benches that CC Bud Baxter sits on alone at night. There's so many great moments in this movie from every technical aspect, from the amazing cinematography, from the great acting from Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, like we mentioned, those are both my best actor and best actress picks. Plus, it's what we were calling a perfect script. Hard not to pick this as your best picture winner. And it's going to be really hard moving forward to like think of a film that can really compete with this. But I'm excited for the challenge to see what we have. Yeah, there's certainly a challenge ahead. There's a lot of great movies to come. And just to give some context to like these best picture pick so our 10th episode we both said it happened one night on our 20th episode i said casablanca you said the best years of our lives and then for our 30th episode i picked on the waterfront 
and you pick the bridge on the River Kwai. So what is that? Six films, including The Apartment, I think in total right there, to choose from as like what we think are the best of the best picture winners uh, should like give you the context enough to say like, go watch these movies, go experience them. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to love, a lot to laugh and cry at. So I, it just, I love doing this stuff. This is why we, I wanted to do this podcast. Why that, why we're here doing this, talking about this is to talk about these best picture winners as not just like, yeah, this one best picture for this year and put it in the context, but like putting them all together and looking at it as a whole, like, these movies are considered the best pictures. So what makes that? And I think we've chosen some movies uh, from not just the past episodes, but th- from this episode and these last 10 years of movies that we've talked about, just some phenomenal moments in, in cinema and film and, and something that I'm really happy to be a part of. So with all of that said, with this lengthy intro, we have a film to talk about. And that's one from 1967. So, John, I'm just going to pose this question to you so we can jump right into it. Is In the Heat of the Night worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1967? In the Heat of the Night. A black Philadelphia police detective is mistakenly suspected of a local murder while passing through a racially hostile Mississippi town. After being cleared, he is reluctantly asked by the police chief to investigate the case. Wealthy industrialist Philip Colbert moves to Sparta, Mississippi to build a factory. Late one night, police officer Sam Wood discovers Colbert's murdered body lying in the street. Wood finds Virgil Tibbs, a black man with a fat wallet, at the train station and arrests him. Police Chief Gillespie accuses him of murder and robbery, but soon learns Tibbs is a top homicide detective from Philadelphia. Tibbs wants to leave town on the next train, but his boss suggests he stays in Sparta to help with the murder investigation. Though Gillespie, like many of Sparta's white residents, is racist, he and Tibbs reluctantly agree to work together. A doctor estimates that Colbert has been dead for less than an hour when his body was found. Tibbs examines the body and concludes the murder happened earlier than the doctor thought. The killer was right-handed and the victim had been killed elsewhere and moved to where Wood found his body. Glipsby arrests another suspect, Harvey Oberst, who protests his innocence. The police plan to beat him to extract a confession, but Tibbs reveals Oberst is left-handed and has witnesses to confirm his alibi. Frustrated by the ineptitude of the local police, but impressed by Tibbs, Colbert's widow threatens to halt construction of the factory unless Tibbs leads the investigation. So the town's leading citizens are forced to comply with her demand. Tibbs initially suspects the murderer is plantation owner Endicott, a genteel racist and one of the town's most powerful citizens, who publicly opposed Colbert's new factory. When Tibbs interrogates him, Endicott slaps him in the face, and Tibbs slaps him back, so Endicott sends a gang of thugs after him. Gillespie rescues him and tells him to leave town to save himself, but Tibbs is convinced he can solve the case. Tibbs asks Wood to retrace his patrol car route during the night of the murder. Gillespie joins them. After questioning why Wood partially detours from his patrol route, 
Tibbs finds that Wood enjoys passing by the house of a 16-year-old Dolores Purdy with its bright lights and unobscured windows to watch her undress. Gillespie discovers that Wood made a sizable deposit to his bank account the day after the murder. He arrests Wood, despite Tibbs' protest that he is not the murderer. Tibbs tells Gillespie that the murder was committed at the site of the planned factory, which clears Wood because he could not have driven both his and Colbert's cars back into town. Also, while being interrogated, Wood provides a credible account of where the money for his large deposit could have come from. Dolores' brother, Mr. Purdy, a hostile local, brings her to the police station and files statutory rape charges against Wood for getting her pregnant. When Tibbs insists on being present during Dolores' questioning, Purdy is offended that a black man is present during her interrogation and soon afterwards gathers a mob to attack Tibbs. Tibbs pressures illegal abortionist Mama Kaliba to reveal that she is about to provide an abortion for Dolores. When she arrives and sees Tibbs, Dolores runs away. Tibbs follows her and confronts her armed boyfriend, Ralph, a cook at a local roadside diner. Purdy's mob also arrives and holds Tibbs at gunpoint. Tibbs tells Purdy to check Dolores' purse for the money Ralph gave her for an abortion, which he got from killing and robbing Colbert. Purdy realizes Tibbs is right when he examines the purse. After Purdy confronts him for getting his sister pregnant, Ralph shoots Purdy dead. Tibbs grabs Ralph's gun as Galepsi arrives on the scene. Ralph is arrested and confesses to the killing of Colbert. After hitchhiking a ride with Colbert and asking him for a job, Ralph attacked him at the construction site of the new factory, intending only to knock out Colbert unconscious and rob him, but instead accidentally killed him. Tibbs arrives at the station to meet his train to go to Philadelphia, as Gillespie, having carried his suitcase, shakes Tibbs' hand and bids him farewell. In the final interaction between Gillespie and Tibbs, as the detective ascends the stairs onto the train, for one last time, Gillespie calls out to him and sincerely tells Tibbs to take care of yourself. Next, after a moment of hesitation, Tibbs turns around to face Gillespie and offers Gillespie a warm smile in reply. Gillespie then smiles back at Tibbs as Tibbs boards the train and the train pulls away from the station, finally bound for Philadelphia. In the Heat of the Night is directed by Norman Jewison. Written by Sterling Siliphant, based on the novel by John Ball. Produced by Walter Mirisch. Music by Quincy Jones. Cinematography by Haskell Wexler. Editing by Hal Ashby. Casting by Lynn Stallmaster. Art direction by Paul Gross. And costume design by Alan Levine. In the Heat of the Night starred Sidney Poitier as Detective Virgil Tibbs. Rod Steiger as Chief Bill Gillespie. Warren Oates as Officer Sam Wood. Lee Grant as Mrs. Colbert. Larry Gates as Eric Endicott. James Patterson as Mr. Purdy. William Schallert as Mayor Schubert. Bay Richards as Mama Kaliba. Quentin Dean as Dolores Purdy. And Anthony James as Ralph. In the heat of the night Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow Yeah In the heat of the night 
So usually when there is a song in a movie, John, I do like to end the podcast by singing it, but would you like to sing In the Heat of the Night to start uh, our conversation? Would you like in to the heat of the night. <laughs> that's all I got. That, but man, right. I love I love the way the movie starts like that. Yeah. It's like we the barely even get a Ray frame. Charles. Oh, yeah. yeah we, we barely get a frame and it's just like bolting out Ray Charles, like bringing you into this world. I love that so much. And what a what a beautiful opening scene to this, right? Like, it's so dark and moody, and it's like no surprise that this is the first time that the cinematographer Haskell Wexler has ever shot a film on color, and you, you kind of get that sensation where you watch this movie, and there's so much shadow, there's so much black and white, even though. How did you describe this film? I think it's the perfect way to say it. I call this movie the most colored black and white movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's so true. It, it, it's like it's muted in a way that's not bad. Like we talked about Tom Jones being like too overtly muddy and muted. There's there's a lot of color in this movie and it's it's really pops off the screen. But I think it a lot has to do with that amazing cinematography and the editing that kind of like guides us into this world. And obviously we have the great Ray Charles song in the heat of the night named after the film as well. But man, what what an amazing way to open <laughs> this film, introduce us to this world and introduce us to our character and introduce us to this detective that we have no idea as the viewer it, is Tibbs a good guy or bad guy? Is he even right. a murder victim? And I think that's a great way to kind of jump off the top. And obviously, I want to hear your thoughts on the opening. But I also want to ask you, like, did you notice that watching this movie that this film almost is self-referential in a way that it's, it's almost actively feels like it's talking to the audience in the way that the editing, you know, doesn't show Tibbs. It kind of showing him like low profile. It's almost like asking the audience to like judge, like judge these characters. Like, I dare you, like judge as much as you want. Like, we'll change your mind by the end of this movie. So what, what did you think of that? Yeah. Uh, wow. That's unpack right there. So sorry for your question though. I think it's very intentional. It's very intentional that Jewison would set up these characters that would make the audience think like motives, like true, like, like they're true characters or true selves. Who are these guys? Like is Tibbs really a good guy? Just cause he's one that everyone is throwing all these racist taunts and, there's awful things at him and, and treating him poorly. He has this edge to him. That's like, that's like, wow, maybe like his Philadelphia, like cop self, maybe he's done some shady shit and, you know, to like figure out ways to like get shit done. He definitely seems like he'll play by the book only for certain parts, you know? And so there's this edge to him. And I think that what, and again, like what Jewson is trying to like challenge the audience for a 1967 audience that civil rights is, very very new i mean just everything that's going on in the 60s in, in terms of racial tension and 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 turnover and a revolution and a revolution that's still going on and it's still being challenged in today's cinema it's it was meant to make people uncomfortable it was meant for people to look at well what you know if they're both cops what's the you know what's the moral difference are you just going to look at one cop differently because he's black versus the other cop because he's white one's way better at his job than the other but they both work you know, symbiotically with each other and both reveal stuff about each other. I mean, even at times in the movie, I'm mean, getting Tibbs is like even questioned by his, like his uh, sergeant in Philadelphia, like calling him prejudice. Why wouldn't you work mm. with these guys? They're cops. Are mm. you prejudiced? No, sir. I'm not prejudiced. Like, so there it, it's very intentional with how 
they set up this movie with with challenging the audience their thought and and what goes into it i mean when you look at it now from today and and i guess i'm jumping down to like my like overall thoughts of the film i think that because it uh it came out in 1967 because it, it's so new in terms of like talking about racism and talking about racial differences in film some of it today seems very basic and it seems very like formulaic and i think that a lot of movies today take inspiration from this and take it further and and do more to it so and that's not that's not this movie's fault at all it came out in 1967 so i can't blame it for not being the most forward i think i actually read a criterion essay about it saying like this movie as good as it is it's not a very radical film the most radical part is the slap which we'll get to but otherwise this movie doesn't do anything too radically out there that's like that truly makes you feel challenged i think that it's it was up to more modern cinema you know filmmakers and cinema lovers to get that feeling of, of being challenged by movies and racism yeah saying all that uh there's a lot yeah you know you talk about the the look of this movie the way a wexler films it one of the great things that he does and decides to do because in color is properly light Sidney poitier light you know lighting a black person is different than lighting a white person totally different skin colors and skin tones i think for lighting a black person you have to use a lot more blue filters and, and blue lighting to get their their lighting properly lit so it's a great job by him to like recognize that and to apply that for the film and then yeah the opening scene just like so much intrigue and so much mystery i i, I want to jump into it but i want to give the floor back to you because i feel like there's a lot of impact there uh in yeah terms no, of, like just talking about this movie in general yeah no there is a lot to unpack because i think there's a lot to impact about this film and it's overall themes more than even just the story itself. What the story is, you know, a whodunit murder, not to the degree of it's really asking the audience to guess too much. It's not really sticking its head out straightforward. It's just that. I think it's a lot to do with more of the themes as well from our characters. And you said a lot. And I think a great way to describe this film is some people don't see it that radically. I think there's more that we can kind of break down and talk about this film and why I think it is pretty radical, especially for the time. But to me, this film very much feels like an icebreaker where it's like a crack in a frozen lake where Hollywood was that frozen lake for a long time. And it was white women, white men, mainly white men just on the forefront playing heroes or villains. And that's Hollywood. And this film in the heat of the night does feel kind of like a crack in that where the filmmaking in a way is self-reflective to show the audience like this isn't. This isn't the movie you think it is. This isn't the characters you think it is. And we're going to push the boundaries and really show you where we're going. We're going to go beyond this, but we're going to show you things that have never been seen by the general mainstream Hollywood audience. And we'll definitely get that with the slap. But I think there's even moments to start even earlier that kind of show that. And I think the introduction to Tibbs walking, showing just the bottom of his legs, his feet, really just showing him as this like mysterious man who maybe could be our killer at the time. We don't know. But what I think is even more interesting to me and the way the film is self-reflective comes with uh, Quentin Dean, who plays Dolores Purdy, who is our mysterious naked women or woman in the very beginning of the film. So not soon after that we are introduced to Tibbs or kind of see him walking into Sparta, our Mississippi town, we are introduced to this kind of naked woman who undresses in her room and just kind of likes to show off for people that drive by and the film it shows 
not fully nudity, but it's it's definitely showing parts of her body. And at the time, we're just seeing this as a grown woman. Like, there's no indication that this is a young girl at all, because it would be kind of shocking if the film were to say that and then show us right away. But what the film does, as us, the spectators, makes us kind of like googly eye almost in a way that is pornographic like look at this beautiful woman like isn't this gorgeous like wouldn't you do the same thing if you drove by and saw this beautiful like naked woman in the in in the window just like waiting there beckoning it's like a male it's a complete male fantasy and it what it takes over an hour for the film to be like that is a 16 year old girl like that is just a little girl like looking for attention and it, that is so intentional from the screenplay and it's so fucked up because it makes you as the viewer feel like a complete creep, especially as a man watching this movie. You're like, it feels like a classic Hollywood like sexuality of like over sexualizing a woman and and the male gaze of like googly eyes to be all over her. But it, it this film goes the extra mile to be like, no, you're a fucking pervert like you, the <laughs> watcher. I saw the way you looked at her in the beginning. Like you were just like the cop, Sam Wood. You didn't care like you watched it and you enjoyed what you saw. And then it's not until at the very end of the film where it's like, no, there's more to that. Like you need to question your own morality of what you just saw and with the way you felt. So yeah. I even think something as small as that, which the film, you know, doesn't really play with that very much, but it definitely questions you as the audience. Like, think again, you know? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of that of just like think again ideas that like is this really what you're feeling? Because if you truly think more about it, maybe this is how you should feel about it. You know, is this aggressive or is this true? You know, a just reaction type of thing. There's a lot to unpack, um, but I want to go back to the beginning. I want to start it there because of how it sets up the movie. I talked about when we were talking about the worthies uh, for best editing, like why this movie won. And that's because of the tension that it built. And it's right from the beginning. Yeah, the Ray Charles song is going on. We're trying to figure out like what's going on in this town. But as soon as the song ends and the credits stop, the intro credits stop, it's a smash cut right to a fly, like a stream closer to a fly on this wall. And the next thing you see is this guy in a diner trying to kill it with a rubber band. So immediately you have the killer right there. You have Again. the... self-reflective yeah it's telling you the viewer he's the killer he's killing a fly right in front of you and you don't even notice yeah like you see it like it's really right there it's it's a great because it's so obvious like it's right in your face that the first thing you see is the actual killer itself but you wouldn't think about that so he's a dweeb he's a yeah he's dweeb he's working in a diner it's late at night like why would he be involved how what's the logistics of that and uh it so again the editing and the tension that it builds is really great and then you follow Sam around the car. You, you see him creeping on Dolores. You then see him driving around the town. And all of a sudden, it, one of the cool things they do is this, like, sped up zoom to, like, right to the taillight of him stopping. Crazy. So crazy experimental. Yeah. Like, where did that come from? I haven't seen that before in a movie or really in many films since. If you see yeah. it now, you almost feel like it's a mistake. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> but for the time, it's almost necessary because you're trying to get that effect of, like, smash. Like, he hit the brake really quick. And, like, oh, he's like he's stopping for something. And then you find the dead body. And that's when the movie really goes. That's when all the, the, the fast-paced, the dialogue starts getting really snappy. I think that scene where, the, where Gillespie, you first see Gillespie, uh, Sam is telling them like what happened. We saw the body. The doctors there. The guy who's taking the photos of the dead bodies there. They're all like what looking around this body and all quick back and forth. 
how did you find it? Did you find this on them? Did you say this? And one of my favorite things in that moment is the way that uh, Rod Steiger playing uh, Gillespie, he says to the doctor, he's like, well, how long ago did he die? Doctor goes, ah, an hour, maybe less, hour and a half. And when, as he's hearing that, you just see Steiger's performance of like hearing an hour. Okay, maybe less. Oh God, the guy's still here. He like he's still in this area. So it's like the the clog the cogs start like turning and the grinds start going. Uh, it, it, it's like it immediately goes. It's go 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 for this entire movie. Uh, there's some really great chase sequences throughout. So it's a good setup. And then what that leads to is them finding Tibbs at the train station waiting, and that's where so much more tension is built. That's where we get introduced to Sidney Poitier's character and the movie just it skyrockets from there in terms of action mm-hmm. and, and what's and what's about to unfold. Yeah, and I think it's a wonderful scene with our officer, Sam Wood, who kind of comes across our character, Tibbs, and he doesn't know he's a detective. He just sees what at the time a black was... Man. Yeah, very rare sight, especially in Sparta, Mississippi. Like we yeah. meet basically one other black character who has a black family uh, locally who runs the um, the mechanic shop, and that seems to be the only other black person in Sparta, Mississippi. And they make that very apparent. And it's man, right off the jump, with Sam immediately like pointing a gun right Ooh. at this random man that he has no proof or evidence of other than he's a stranger who shouldn't be here and he's black and he's at this train station. And it's immediately like the stakes are so high. Like we have not seen an Oscar picture where within the first five minutes, our lead is getting a gun pointed at him. Like, like it's crazy. Like <laughs> yeah. maybe you could say like on the waterfront with like the death of the mobs killing the guy, throwing him off the roof. But maybe you could say that cause it's almost the very beginning of that film. But there's a real grittiness to this film, a real a realism that we I just feel like we have barely even touched so far in any of the best picture winners. I think you could maybe go to maybe even something like a Marty, which is like over we're over a decade beyond that. But I think you can see maybe hints of the realism that you see in Marty, even though it's played up a lot. I just don't think we've even come to the level of realism that we see in this film when it comes to the dialogue and how just just natural and organic it feels to just the way it looks. Even the opening and having a show the town and just see a little dog standing outside of a doorway like it's showing us what feels like documentary footage of Sparta, Mississippi, but it's not. They weren't even filming in Sparta, Mississippi, which is so fascinating. They shot most of this film in, uh, not Chicago, but outside in Illinois. And there's a lot of great stories about, you know, Poitier who slept with a gun under his pillow and was afraid uh, of shooting in actually Mississippi. So they kind of moved into Illinois. And there's a lot of great behind the scenes footage, or not footage, but stories behind the shooting of this film and all the kind of trouble they went through. But it's such a dramatic and intense way to start this movie. And I love it. It truly is a ticking time bomb, especially from this point on. And he takes Tibbs, our, our detective character who they still don't know into the, into the the police building and they're kind of questioning him and they, he has the money. And I think this is a really great scene because not only it pins Rod Steiger's character uh, with Poitier and then we're kind of head to head where already, you know, we have such strong personalities that are going at each other. I think there's a level of frustration where if this guy's a detective, I'm pretty sure he would have said, I'm a cop as soon as he got a gun pointed at him. You know, there's like some logistics, like 
would that really happen? Like, I'm pretty sure he would reveal that he's a cop as soon as, like, Sam Wood pointed the gun at him. But whatever. We'll, we'll leave it aside for dramatic effects. It's, it's a lot more dramatic that he gets to be brought in, that they see the money. And I think this opens up a really interesting thematic idea behind this film and not only is this film white versus black and the the mixing of the two the the getting along between someone who's white someone who's black and understanding the differences and how to become close it's I think more than just that because the south is not obviously the south is always labeled as being racist as as being looked at as lower class making less money being just generally more poor or filthy i think those are general stereotypes that we constantly hear and i think we even still hear and talk about them today in america but what's so interesting about this film is not only is it about race relations it's about the difference between north and south even and not even because there are a lot more racist people in the south because that's the organics of what happened from our our own civil war but also the differences between the way northerners live and the way southerners live and it's almost it's funny in a way where we have the chief who's just like looking at his wallet Tibbs tells him how much he makes in a week and the officer the chief just doesn't understand he's like what like that's how much I I don't even make that much in a month like how are you making that in a week you know the disparity between their own pay wages is fascinating and it's such a small part of this film but there's almost a inherent jealousy that he has just right off the bat even though this is a clearly a very racist white chief who is clearly looking at this person immediately as a criminal, there's like a level of jealousy in what we then see turn into kind of a hatred then turns into animosity, which is, I think, is a very, very fascinating relationship. And it may be the most interesting relationship that like two men have had in any Best Picture winner. I think I might just flat out say it might be the most like male on male relationship that we've seen so far i think you could maybe look at like lawrence of arabia uh with like sharif's character because that's a very interesting dynamic uh perspective but yeah i was curious what did you think about uh, mainly that scene where they're interrogating him he reveals that he's a detective but also about you know the difference between the north and the south and how they kind of play on that with not just money but obviously their their differences their way of living is totally so different yeah i think that uh scene where they first gonna interact like it's two great actors really going at it and not really they're not going at each other they're just they're interacting with each other but there's that hostile feel to it because one is being held one's the police although they're both police so that reveal is nice uh but when i you're talking about this disparity this north and south thing i think it's more of a rich and poor thing this movie is very much about yeah. the poor people and how like Thing about the title in the heat of the night you break it down from there that you really get the sense that the place they're in it's hot it's sticky it's sweaty it's smelly the poor people live probably in the filth they live in this degradation they just absolutely poor in uh, conditions and then the rich people in this town living it up there's the factory being put into town endicott has has like grip on the town mm-hmm. yeah there it's just there's a lot there's a lot of uh a lot of tension just in terms of wealth and status that I think adds to the themes and, and the context of this movie and like, you know, what each class has to do, like why, why there's these social issues. So, and, and why people feel this way. So I think like there's a lot of that there. And then especially again, yeah, when the money's pulled out, 
you know, Steiger's like, I'm the chief of police, I don't, and I don't get this kind of money. It and it, and it's even reemphasized when uh, when Tibbs has to take the call, and he's like, I'll pay for the call. And at the end, when he's counting the money uh, to make sure he got his money back, um, Gillespie is like, We'll be able to take care of this call, as if like you know, your money's <laughs> like no good here. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, but even down upon him, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's a lot of tension. It, it builds this. It's it lays the foundation for. And I hate that my mind goes to this because this movie is not a buddy cop film, but it has that buddy cop, you know, sentimentality of it. So it's, and and that's not what this movie is at all. So I'm not calling it a buddy cop film, but it just has like that obvious relationship of black cop, white cop having to work together. It's 1967. So this is pretty radical, you know, for its time. So the, the story progresses. They're looking for this murderer. There, one of the I think more interesting things is the way that Tibbs is allowed on the case and how he like handles looking and examining the body. Like you see a black man touching a dead white man's body, looking at it, caressing it, kind of in a way, and and trying to examine it. And the doctor and I don't even know what this other guy like what his role truly was. Maybe it was just the his house they put the body in. I don't. <laughs> yeah. really, I really don't, I don't know. know. It's the uh, assistant. I just thought it was like the coroner's assistant. Yeah, I, I guess it. I guess it's that. But they're just like looking at him. They're just like, "What's this black guy doing? <laughs> you know what? Like, what's going on here? Like, it's so like tense and like it doesn't need to be. And and the way I think that Steiger and and, and his personification of Gillespie, the way he's just like, "All right, this guy's a part of it. I just gotta accept it." And I don't think mm-hmm. like when you say Gillespie's a race, like he does call him. Uh, you know it's a great says, question yeah he says call me n-word at one point and but it's never i don't think he does that in terms of like he hates black people he's just groomed and raised in the south where saying something like that to a black person is pr- very normalized you know so when he does have that moment you're like wow you're a racist it's like well how like that's part of his upbringing he's letting out aggression and anger he's being shown up at his job he thinks he has one thing but he doesn't because this other guy came in who's making more money from him, who's a lower rank than him, is obviously outsmarting him in every way possible. And I think we not only that's a, a really great question to just simply ask, is Chief Bill Gillespie racist? I think that's a great jumping point of a huge conversation that I think you'd have just about this film. And I don't I you know, I'm not educated enough on race relationships or, or specifically some of the lingo that you may use to describe racism in a way but it's almost a racism that you kind of play hand in hand I think you you kind of described with it it's the way he grew up it's kind of the people he's surrounded by but I think the chief is a very interesting character because of a scene that we kind of get to later on which I just called the loneliness scene which is about how he just is depressed basically he's alone and depressed and all he really wants to do is be like a leader for this town be something that people look up to and respect and he just feels like he doesn't even get that you know he seems like he's pretty new to the job and he really just wants to be good for these people and what's good for the people seems to be kicking out this black man who's arrived to town because that's what they're used to that's what's expected from these people that have just grown up with these ideologies and it almost feels like that Gillespie is going out of his way to be racist and not because he internally feels that way it's because he feels like he needs to do that he needs to do that for sam wood who's his officer for the other officers in town for the people who he interacts with you know every scene 
where we have these two characters enter a room, the screenplay and the direction knows that this is like a unicorn walking into a room. It knows that this is like an, a site that's not really seen very often. And especially if you're just side by side with the chief of police next to a black man who's dressed extremely well in a nicer suit than probably anyone in that town owns. And the film never forgets that either it's a character who's so taken aback they don't even know what to say like the coroner and and his assistant or if it's like later on with Ralph who immediately just says blatantly I will not serve you so I think the film never forgets to do that and I think bringing it back to the chief it's such an interesting question like yes without a doubt he's racist it's so clear he's saying very racist things but I think there's more to his character and it feels like he himself not just Rod Steiger as his character, he himself, the chief, is playing this role. He thinks he needs to be this this very like disciplined, racist man because he thinks that's what the town needs and that's what's right for the world. And also, on the other hand, he's probably never really met a man like this. There's very little black people. I think I described in this town, there's like one, I think, other black person in a family that work in the mechanic shops. And I don't think the chief has really sat down with him and discussed, you know, very in-depth ideology like he already has with Tibbs character. So it's a great question. And I think the answer is yes and no, because of this way he's trying to like balance his own role. He's trying to balance the power the jealousy that he has about this man. And I think that's super interesting when you look at that scene of them meeting with the the other side where Tibbs has to call his own detective and be like, hey, I shouldn't be here. I should got to get home. He calls his head of uh, head of the police, I'm assuming. And I it's like something we don't even hear that side of the phone call. And but it really made me think like is his like is his own chief Tibbs own chief who lives back in Philadelphia working there is he like is there a possibility that like he might want Tibbs just out of the picture and I'm not saying like he wants him dead he hopes he doesn't come back but is there a possibility that like his own chief is even racist in Philadelphia like we have to think that like racism is not limited to north and south like his chief could just be as racist as Bill Gillespie is probably not because he's Gillespie probably could not because you know he's hired there and he works in Philadelphia but is there even a tinge of racism to his own chief suggesting you should stay there uh I think that's kind of tough to say I think I mean I don't know because we don't hear that other side of the phone conversation so I don't know if he's like mad that he got caught up in something that Mm -hmm. he's trying to stick it to him or maybe he sees it at you know what let me teach both of them a lesson yeah like see the other side of it like yeah really experience what it's like to be someone who's like an other you know i think why he would want to do that we have no idea yeah i I think it's it's fascinating yeah i think it's hard to like pontificate on like why that is but uh, i think he kind of hit on the nail about gillespie and maybe who he truly is but what he is though in this movie what we do see he's a very interesting character and the way steiger approaches it it's it's very like grand and very gruff, but there's like this also soft side to him. There's just like funny side to him. So it's a, it's a very good performance overall. I think Steiger, uh, obviously, you know, yeah. Spoilers. He wins the Oscar for it. So it's like, he, he does a great <laughs> job with it. So, uh, I really like it. Actually, one thing I really want to talk about, uh, you know, moving forward in the movie is this like chase that they think they have a suspect. So they're chasing this guy through a forest or dogs chasing after him. Yeah. Yeah crazy shots in terms of just like the cameras like rolling around on the ground like it's in the ground as he's like running over it's just 
super out there, super uh, experimental. So I really like I'm that. I'm telling you, if you like that scene, you need to watch the Defiant Ones because <laughs> it's literally that entire movie is just that scene, but just for 90 minutes. And you uh, also get Poitier as well. So you look right. best Tony Curtis too, best of both worlds. And it's literally that intensity for like 90 minutes straight. Yeah. That whole movie is like that. All right. Well, there's a lot of movies I have to watch. Uh, that's for the next uh, podcast I decided to do is all the movies that I know I have to watch, but haven't watched yet, but I'm getting to watch. So there's a lot there. But anyways, uh, the f- so I really want to talk about this one Steiger Gillespie moment. So they're chasing this guy and, and, they, and they chase him onto a bridge. He's like about to run into Arkansas. And Gillespie's just sitting in his cop car. And it's just this <laughs> this this side profile shot. He's sitting there chewing his gum. The glasses, the sunglasses are on. Just picks up the you know the mic and just goes, Okay, I got him. And he just starts <laughs> just driving away. And and as he's driving away, it's like this Wes Anderson shot of just like, well, the, the camera's attached to the car, obviously. So he's static, but everything's moving in the background. It's just this slow push in. And I was just like, this is such a Wes Anderson shot right here. This is <laughs> hilarious. Just him standing there going, okay, I got it. And just goes <laughs> right after him and, and gets the guy. It's, it's so funny. And, but well, I think it adds to his character because it's like, this guy really is just not going to give any bullshit. He's just going to go do no. his job and get it done. No. It, it not only shows how just like incompetent a lot of the police are in this film and the whole it also shows just how ridiculous and idiotic some of the town's ideas are not just the police even some of the people in the town like it just it's really funny the way they portray the people of the town of sparta and it's somewhat backhandedly where it almost looks down at them but again i think it comes back to referential where it's like are you the viewer just putting these people down as well so i don't know there's a lot to say uh, about the referential matter to it, but I want to talk uh, again more about some of the ice-breaking moments is what I'll keep calling them. And I think you did a great job of describing Tibbs kind of inspecting the body, which we just see close-ups of his hand kind of working his way across this man's body, a white flesh body. You know, it's it's a very, it's an icebreaker. It's intense to see someone's like kind of hands like that it's hard to say it's just it's so funny looking back at this now like 50 plus years later and be like this is crazy and was ahead of its time but it's like yeah you got to put yourself in the time of what happened mlk just recently was assassinated right before this like you said we're at a huge height of race riots and issues with civil rights so this is a huge deal to see a man touching it and it's not a sexual way but it's a very overtly very in-your-face way of showing it and I think we also see that with Mrs. Colbert's character Mrs. Colbert is the the victim's wife who comes in and she's basically what gets Tibbs fully assigned to this case but she's played by Lee Grant a really wonderful little sweet quick performance that she's in this film but it's a really interesting scene because Tibbs tries to console her and what happens and I think this is why the film doesn't really he still doesn't get the respect that I think it deserves and calling it maybe too overt, too, too on the nose. It seems like this where Mrs. Colbert is obviously distressed. She's here for a reason to build this factory and her husband had this dream and he's dead now. And Tibbs is trying to console her and talk to her, but she immediately recoils and it's not dramatic in a way where it's like, get away from me, you know, and something that we would have seen in the thirties very over the top and dramatic it's just like no no like her immediate like 
knowledge in her mind is like don't ever let a black man touch you or like get even close to you like you can see the internal racism that she has without even saying a word just her reaction but because it's either because she is not really truly racist it's just kind of the life that she's lived and the rules that she's kind of like given herself or it's because she's in a very emotional state and she needs someone there she needs someone to comfort her and the scene that she has with Tibbs it breaks down to her pushing him away for a second and then he sees that like she really like does need my does need my help and does need me to be there and and to just hold her for just a quick second even though I'm a stranger to her so it is a really beautiful way to show internal internal racism that like we can have just as purely white people and people don't think that they're being racist and the term microaggressions are heard so commonly nowadays but I think this is a a really beautiful way of showing this and so ahead of its time of showing that as well and there's there's more that we'll get to but yeah did what do you think of Mrs. Colbert and and that uh, little scene they have together with Tibbs it's funny that you bring that up because I was thinking about that moment earlier today and you could you can very easily read it as, oh, racist. She doesn't want a black man touching her. But then you think about the context of it, the emotions of, I just found out my husband just got murdered. I'm in this town that, I, like, they moved to, to build this factory. They're not from there, so it's, like, losing that person. I don't blame somebody for, like, not wanting to be touched or yep. to be held in that moment. And I, and, and I think the way that, that Tibbs reacts is telling of that of understanding i don't think he's i think he feels helpless in that fact as a human but not as like oh she doesn't want to touch me because i'm black i i don't i don't know maybe that's the way i read it maybe that's just because of no, where we I think are as a society it's up for in- interpretation yeah. i think and i think that's really what makes it such an interesting scene is because it could it could go both ways and i, I do feel that same way that you do because it is it's it's much more understandable and human and I think as simply as just being, oh, no, get away from me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, I, I think it's just a, 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 you know, it's very emotional right there. That there's a lot yeah. of high tension, a lot of emotions. So I don't blame, Col- you know, Mrs. Colbert for, for feeling that way. But in terms of like other moments of racism, th- I think this one, it leads directly into it. So she, Tibbs gets put on the case. Mrs. Colbert is just like, yeah, I want him on it. And then they start digging in and one of the first places they go is to this and this guy Endicott's uh plantation. Endicott was uh an essentially like against what Colbert was trying to do, which was build a factory in the town. So they're like, all right, well we gotta go to this guy. You know, if he doesn't like Colbert, then he might be a suspect. And it it's this very like awkward scene because Tibbs and Gillespie go into this guy's greenhouse, they're talking to him, it's very cordial. They're you know, Tibbs and Endicott are talking about gardening they're in this greenhouse and and it seems very cordial and then it gets like very tense very quickly then it's accusatory and endicott slaps tibbs and not even like out a second of thought tibbs slaps him right back and that's the (gasps) moment that's the moment Mm -hmm. where i know like reading about norman jewison was like very concerned about how that slap would translate into audiences like how would they receive that and white audiences to the and black audiences were kind of cheering it on you know it, it's this very like huge moment where you see a black man slapping a white man on a plantation it's it's very obvious like why he's doing it. he's slapping racism he's not going to take this bullshit and it, it's great it's a very great moment it's very 
It's very quick. There's not much other reaction to it besides Endicott going to Gillespie. Like, do you see what he just did? And Gillespie's like, yeah, I saw that. And kind of just like, <laughs> he's a cop. You fucked with him. And it happens. You get slapped. Uh, so it's uh, it, it's a great moment. It's very iconic. It's very in your face. Um, so, yeah. I, I, what do you think of that scene of the slap? Because it, it, it comes out of nowhere. I mean, like I, I knew it obviously going into the movie of watching it before but you had never seen this movie so i can't imagine when that happened you were like wait what oh my god dude well it happens so fast right it's like such a fast slap both of them and tibbs is even faster honestly the backhanded quick slap is crazy and it is significant i mean it's something that we've never seen and it must have been crazy to see in a huge major film by united artists where our main character slaps a white man like it's pretty surreal even if it's you know one hit after the other it's still very significant but i think that it's again the nuances is what makes the scene and what makes this film so damn good to me and it's not even just wow like that's something we've never seen like that's dramatic that's great to see and especially it must have been incredible to see as someone who was you know black in the 60s and getting to go to the movie theaters and probably how hard it was probably to even go to the theaters and probably most of the people that even saw this that were black were probably in the south which is just crazy to think about because that's the, the whole movie is about the south is racist and obviously it's a very like simple very simplistic way to describe this movie but there are these nuances and i think we even see that in this film where he's it's not the it's not the most subtle conversation uh, obviously, we have this plantation owner who we already know he has servants. He has people that are of color working uh, on on the plantation, as he would call them. And we know that this is already a bad man. Like he's a plantation owner. We already know that this guy is going to be extremely racist and maybe the most racist person that we've seen so far. And at first, like he's nice. And, and, and to Tibbs, you're like, oh, well, maybe this guy isn't that bad. He's talking about orchids. He's having pretty civil conversation. And then his conversation kind of turns and it's like, oh, like you like this one particular orchid, don't you, Tibbs? Well, you know, I know why you like that orchid. It's because, you know, he basically implies that this specific breed of orchid is very much in relation to someone who's black, someone who needs a lot of time and, and care and needs to be fed. And it's just like so ridiculously racist while trying to be subtle and saying it and obviously that's kind of what immediately puts Tibbs on the defense of like I fucking don't like this guy I should not trust this guy immediately and then we get to like the slap because he understands the plantation owner understands that they're basically interrogating him in a very respectful manner implying that he has some implication with this murder and then that's why it escalates to that height but what I really really love about this scene is that quickly after Tibbs leaves, or not even just after he leaves, but the conversation that they have, right? You describe the way he turns to Galipsby and he's just, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And that's that's just an amazing moment because he's like white like white man to white man. Like, you know that this guy is, shouldn't be here anyway. Like, what are you, what are you actually going to do about it? And that's such a great like turn for his character. It shows even more how evil he is. It also shows our break in our chief's character who's already beginning to be like, I kind of like this guy. Like, that was a ballsy move to do. But what I really love about this moment is the after words the almost no words given Tibbs leaves the chief leaves and who's left there with this plantation owner 
the black servant who is there to give the guests their drinks, tea maybe or something like that. And what does he do? He looks to this Enticott, the plantation owner, and just shakes his head. Like, I heard what you just said. I heard the way you, like, described us as being, like, lower than and needing help and and just hitting him and feeling like you need that and you can get away with that and even get him in trouble for hitting you back. Like, there's that subtle moment of those two men just looking at each other. We don't even know this servant's name. He's just a random guy who just happened to be in the background. And it's that subtle look to this plantation owner, and he also leaves the room, too, leaving the plantation owner just alone there with no help with no one with him and what's so crazy is he just like starts to break down and cry i don't know if you noticed that it happens very quickly but i'm like what the fuck what does that mean like that is so interesting is he partly remorse like remorseful for like what he said is he kind of like disgusted in himself in a way for like revealing that inner racism like what is it you know i don't know if it's it could be that it could just be oh i got slapped and i'm a little bitch type of thing (laughs) i I, i'm honestly more inclined to believe that more than just like oh i feel this shame of what i've done you don't feel ashamed of what you've done i think it's more i i think you're embarrassed about being slapped and and being called out and I and and I think that that's the uncomfortable thing is that, and 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 that's the challenge and and that's where like that's the most radical thing about this movie is that it's literally slapping the white man in the face. What are you gonna do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. You're the one who who acted up. You're the one who who taunted me. You slapped me first. So how come I how come I can't react back to that? And and I think that's a that's a an issue that black people face in general is that they react with uh, anger and it's like, Whoa, hold on, man. But I, if I give you anger first, that's not an issue at all. And, and that's, that's kind of yeah. like where this movie like tries to challenge that type of thing. And, and it's actually goes, we kind of skipped over it over the, the Mr. Tibbs line, but that's pretty much exactly what happens except there's no slap, uh, between Tibbs and, and Gillespie. Uh, Tibbs is saying Gillespie has it all wrong. He has the wrong guy. They, you know, they got this guy Harvey on the, on the chase. The okay, I got him guy, and uh, the, and Gillespie's like, no, 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 he's the guy. He's the guy, and and Tibbs is like, no, like think about it, like this and and this factor, and like he's left-handed, but the guy he would have been murdered with uh, someone who's right-handed, and and this and that, and then Gillespie's just like, like like incensed by it, and that's where he lets out that racist moment where he's like, Virgil, that's a funny name for a n-word boy uh from philadelphia why do you call what do they call you up there like taunting him and that's where tibbs like lets out of his shell and and it's it's aggressive it's like almost like a dog snarling at you he's like they call me mr tibbs like like fuck you like who the fuck are you to like challenge me like that's what they call me they don't call me this racist taunt they don't call me this or that i'm fucking mr tibbs (laughs) and it's it's powerful it's but it's also subtle but it's like that moment where Steiger's like, all right, fine. Like I kind of got bit by like my, my bark, but I'll take it. Whereas Endicott's just, he starts crying. He's too emotional, can't handle it. And I think that's the challenge is like Jewison, the filmmakers, Poitier, Steiger trying to say to the audience of like, what the fuck are you going to do now? Like, like this is reality. What's your reaction to that? Are you going to, yeah. It's, great. it's so powerful. It really is so powerful. And it is such a balance of being so subtle, yet just powerful in a way that you can recognize it. 
you know exactly what he's referring to and you know exactly the pain and the amount of times that people call him just boy in this movie the just racist undertone of mr tibbs is just called boy constantly throughout this movie even for people he's never met before they just immediately see him and refer to him as boy which is such a subtle like racist backhanded slap it's it, the movie just does such a credible job balancing that nuance of being, you know, overt enough to show that this film is about racism and race relationships, but also the nuance in it and the nuance between these small interactions that these characters have. And it's not just a slap. You know, there's a lot more to these scenes. And I want to talk about something that is not as nuance that is kind of a little more in your face and that's the chase scene i know we talked about the initial chase scene with the criminal but when i refer to the chase scene i think of mr tibbs who's leaving that plantation and what we can expect or what we can assume i should say is that the plantation owner sent a bunch of goons after him uh i think that's kind of implied i don't know if they directly say that or not but what then happens is a crazy chase scene which is pretty pretty involved for what we've seen so far in terms of cars crashing into cars um some pretty some pretty mayhem happening and then we get to the battle between Tibbs and these four men who are all brandishing metal weapons extremely uh, what it looks like they're just about to murder him and I think Galipsy makes that very clear that you know you were about to die like I tried to get you out of here I tried to tell you at this point to go home but I just thought it was an, not only just a very great chase scene that really kind of brought you in but it also highlights just how dangerous this place is and how literally at every moment in any moment someone could just come up and immediately try to kill him and that's just expected and for a lot of people that's just like normal i think there's a couple times in this movie where people are like how are you not dead yet like they just like flat out like are surprised that he's even alive and i think that goes a long way and and this is not like a the most subtle or obscure way but I think it again builds our chief's character with Tibbs because what happens at the end of the scene is that he saves him and these other men look at him again the chief as being like you're white as well like why aren't you on our side and this isn't this isn't a side thing anymore I think we're starting to see now the chief is like no I'm there's no more picking sides it's it's the right or wrong basically and I think that's the start of this true transformation that we see the chief kind of go through and it's subtle it's small but it's subtle so what do you think of that chase scene Ben yeah it, it it's it's shot well and it, it it's very tense and then what I go to like yeah it's a chase scene but it's that scene in the warehouse where they corner him and he he pulls out like a lead pipe and he's swinging it back and forth and He's ready to go. Like I'm telling you, Tibbs does not give a fuck. He he is <laughs> he will fuck somebody up, and it, and he does not care how he does it. So it it's very intense. It, it's that direct racism. It, it's very again. That's a very thing for the audience to see. Is like this is what it looks like. Black men have to deal with this all the time. Not just the South, but everywhere. They have to they have to be on the run. They have to protect themselves. They have to go out, go these aggressive, like disgusting ways because they're being chased and being you know by by tenfold in the amount of people you know that are going after them so it's a it's a very powerful scene and and it's very poignant and what it it does and it kind of strengthens that bond between gillespie and and tibbs and not that gillespie's holding it over tibbs head being like oh i saved you da, 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 da. he's just like you gotta stick with me like we kind of have to work on this together right now we kind of have to be in lockstep and and from that moment forward the rest of the movie they're pretty much in lockstep I think kind of the moment where they they're not is when uh, Tibbs goes off on his own uh, to um, 
to the to the abortion place to that um yeah. oh, what's her name to mama kaliba and yeah. uh yeah and and like that's because just because like lesbian isn't there so then this movie like this mystery keeps going and 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 i kind of want to talk about like this tension this movie it's it's an hour 50 minutes it's it's very tense throughout and i think ultimately the payoff at the end isn't like it does not equal the tension that's built out through the movie and i know kind of the movie is more about this relationship between the black and the white cop how they deal with each other how they work with each other how they approach this and how others deal with them uh trying to solve this mystery but then the actual like murder case at the end feels very like anticlimactic like you 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 kind of want it to be endicott but then when you realize at the end that it's this random diner guy ralph who killed him to by accident because you're trying to get money you're just like all right well i kind of wish like that was solved quicker (laughs) you know yeah it's they tie it really well into his own you know struggle and his own danger that he's in with the group of men kind of coming back and they're basically there again ready to kill tibbs and then of course that's the kind of peak of him solving the murder and figuring it out based around the abortion and her having money and ralph being the one who is kind of really the one who's involved with this whole situation so it it, it becomes a little too convoluted because i think it wants you to keep ralph at a distance it doesn't want to like let ralph too much in to spoil like that he's the real surprise you know murderer, but it's almost too at a distance because they don't give you because yeah like who's the other obvious person like they try to like endicott it's like oh well is it but they don't give you enough they don't dive enough deep into that and i think that's kind of like some of the even the flaws with them as just like cops because they're just like chasing so many different ideas and they're being chased themselves it's like well they can't really establish it then all of a sudden he just wraps it up and figures it out really quickly and that's where some of the like i wish some of that reality was put back into it but i also get like why it wouldn't be because it's not necessarily about the mystery it's about the bond and the relationship and trying to solve it just in general yeah no you're exactly right i think if i were to like take anything off of this film it would be some of the messiness of the end Uh, i do love the line that tibbs gives uh before he goes to uh the the house where the abortions are take or take place usually and how he talks to the chief and he's just like i'm going to a place where you're not welcome (laughs) it's like the first time where he's finally like (laughs) he can like talk back to the chief in a way where the chief has talked to him in that same manner the entire film so yeah it's a great like role reversal but is that like good writing because even like tibbs to uh mama kaliba he goes now listen hear me good mama please don't make me have to send you to jail there's white time in jail there's color time in jail the worst kind of time you can do is color time it feels very much like a 70s like cop show it's just like you want to do white time want to do the black time (laughs) (laughs) it feels it's uh, but it's it's like this this, the movie does become a tv series so it's like yes you could see it you could see it but it is interesting with it being one of the few other black characters in the film and that he's having that kind of and obviously he's that heightened because it's it's about this murder. It's if she reveals who's coming in, then it directly kind of confirms who's the murderer. Um, but it is kind of messy in a way where it, honestly, even the first time I watched it, I was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what's going on? Like, I thought I missed something or like something was off about what I was watching. Uh, but it wasn't until the second viewing where I'm like, oh, no, as, as soon as Sam Wood kind of gets 
accused of being the murderer. The whole film, in terms of its grounded realism, gets a little kind of yeah. messy because it then focuses back on the chief and yeah. Tibbs. So I do agree with you on that for sure. Yeah, and it's not even like a big deal, but it's just kind of like what I'm looking forward just to critique the movie on is like, and when you kind of, and maybe that's how we should wrap up the podcast or at least talk about it is plot versus story the plot uh, and you said it best so maybe i should let you explain it but the plot and story of this movie are one's very simple and one's very like there's a lot of nuance there's a lot of detail involved in it so i'll let you break it down because you said it way better than i did before yeah i if we didn't break down the uh, 40th episode in the very beginning and do our own little worthies uh podcast in the beginning here i wanted to talk about the difference between plot and story and how people don't really know the difference between the two or I think an easier way to look at it is if you think of story you think of the beats the beats but that's not really what the story is when we think of story versus plot plot is the beats to beats of what actually happened story is what happened in the story what is the story telling us and what is it really about what are the themes of that story and I think this is such a perfect example of that because you look at the film and you're like it's a it's a cop mystery movie it's a whodunit who's the murderer but that's not really what the movie focuses on it very much is about the story and it wants to focus on our characters how our characters interact and grow and really what it's like to be a black man a black man who may even still be considered high class very prestigious and well educated but still in a part of the United States be treated as such lower class and completely disrespected in every manner. So I think the film does such a great job of balancing both. I think we talked a little bit about how maybe it gets a little muddied at the end, but the film does such a great job of balancing what the story is trying to tell us and educate us as the viewer, but also bringing us on a ride and telling us, you know, these plot points that lead to our murderer. And we figure out from the very jump, who murdered this man and i the the film just does such a great job of breaking that down and showing it through the eyes of tibbs and bringing us through this journey through tibbs and that's really just the perfect example of separating plot and story and i think you know you could use in the heat of the night as a great example or even teaching an entire like lecture on plot versus story i think it's a great example of that yeah i couldn't agree more actually um my introduction to this class uh to this uh movie and i think that's how we'll wrap it up is and it kind of leads us nicely into the academy awards i took a class in college called uh it was a u.s history class just about the year 1968 so the year 1968 obviously starts off with the death of martin martin luther king and then the oscars that year and what wins is in the heat of the night and it taught and we watched some other movies from that year from 67 like the graduate like um uh, like bonnie and clyde just to get like an idea of like what what film and how it was like changing at that time and there's a lot that's going on in in the sit in the late 60s and specifically 67 and 68 that heightens tension and where a movie like in the heat of the night succeeds is because it 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 fits right in it splits audiences but it brings them together it challenges you but makes you feel comforted that like hey like there's this challenge ahead of us that we can solve together type of thing so it's uh it's a very like it's almost like monumental in terms of this movie coming out but it's a movie no one really talks about and i don't know if that's just because it's not the most technically great movie like i think that some of the 
the green on the film that like we see today, like some of the muddiness that some of the washed out stuff, which is like done for a technical reason, but it's also like not enough where it's like, Oh, well, that's like a great thing to do. It's more just nuance for, for the movie itself. So I, you know, th- this year, this whole like aura and like just impact of going into this movie and then the result of it, it's very like, of the time it, it makes sense for like why it would succeed it makes sense why people would be attracted to it why they'd be so uh you know why why it, it why why so glorified you know i'm trying to think of the right word to say like just like why like why it's it's like divisive but brings people together i don't know if there's really a word for that so it's a it's a very good movie there's a lot of going on but uh john is there anything about in the heat of the night that we haven't touched on that we should talk about yeah, I wanted to just mention the last scene in particular. And we finally, just the way the film opens with our introduction to Tibbs and we don't even see him, we see the train kind of roll in. Now we see the train roll in again. But this time Tibbs isn't alone. He's not getting off of the train. He's getting on it. And I wanted to ask you now if you remember, and I think, again, this is one of those subtle moments where I think you could look at this and you could have written this film where... The chief and Tibbs get to the train and he could say, I can't believe like I would have never thought you're the kind of man you are and you really you really helped us and I can't appreciate you enough. It could have they could have went down that rabbit hole and made it so politically correct that it's just so it just it's diffusing all the hard work that they kind of put in to this movie and how people don't change overnight. You know, people don't just have an experience like the 48 hours that take place in this movie and then all of a sudden they're like I'm not racist I love black people it's just not human we don't change that quickly it takes over time meeting people learning things over time and and over years to change and I wanted to ask you this what happens when Tibbs and the chief walk to the train can you tell me if there's something in particular? I want to say something more, but I don't want to spoil what is happening. But the chief is, I'll say it, the chief is carrying something. Do you know what the chief is carrying something? Yeah, he's holding his suitcase. He's holding Tibbs' suitcase. Yeah. And there's no point to it. There's no like, oh, I, uh, I know this was heavy. Like, I'll hold it for you. They don't have to even mention it. They just show you that he has earned so much respect for this man, that he knows all the work that he put in, that all the effort that he had to, to do this even though he was constantly being told to get out of town to get out of here that even the chief told him to get out of town at one point multiple times that he has earned the respect to be like you know what you deserve to not even have a weight in your hand I should hold this for you because I appreciate you so much for the work that you did that I will literally carry your suitcase to the train for you and just such a beautiful way to end the movie of Poitiers just look at the chief where he just tells him like so long basically farewell and he just looks at him and he knows that this man's life has been changed like he knows that there's something there's a spark inside this man that he is now different in a way in just a small little way and i just think that is one of the most beautiful powerful things that i think we've seen in any of our film endings it's so beautiful yeah it's a moment where you where it teeters that line of oh is this too like happy-go-lucky type of look where a movie like Green Book or a movie like Driving Miss Daisy would be looked at as just like, oh, they're trying too hard. It, it, like, this is almost racist in of itself. Whereas this is like, 
No, I respect you as a human type of thing. Like, there's no controversy with this. There's no controversy with this friendship because it seems genuine, because it seems like it's coming from a place of more professionalism than actual, like, human nature. And the human nature part comes out of them working together and them having that professional relationship. Um, So, yeah, it is a beautiful moment. And the way, like, he says to him, the last lines are, you take care, you hear? Yeah. The most, like, male thing. (laughs) <laughs> All right. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the power in the silence. His yeah. look, his just look and his smile. You know, he barely smiles in this movie, Tibbs. Like as a character, he's just so serious. And this is one of the few times that he smiles in the movie. And it's such a powerful moment. Like he knows the journey that the chief has gone on. Like that is the biggest journey for Tibbs as a character is seeing a man who was so blatantly racist, but didn't even probably realize like why or like what he's actually saying and how it affects someone. So such a beautiful, beautiful movie, Ben. Yeah, it absolutely is. There's, I think, a lot to unpack. It's a very formative movie. I would encourage people to go see it, to experience it. Um, first time I saw it was at our schools we had like we had a few like movie theater kind of size classrooms so I actually got to see it in one of those like bigger halls where it was on a bigger screen I had you know seating like in an audience type of thing so I, I I'll say I got to see it on a big screen and, I, and I'm really happy I did so if you ever have that opportunity um, I'm sure Fathom Events will do something in 2027 for the 60th anniversary <laughs> of the movie so yeah there's a lot to unpack but Speaking of stuff to unpack, let's jump into the 40th Academy Awards. The Wednesday night movie will not be seen tonight, so that we may bring you the following color telecast of the 40th Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and a former winner of the Academy Award himself, Mr. Gregory Peck. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last Monday, was the 40th anniversary of the Academy Awards. Tonight, we welcome you to our presentations. This has been a fateful week in the history of our nation. We join with fellow members of our profession and men of goodwill everywhere in paying our profound respects to the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Society has always been reflected in its art. And one measure of Dr. King's influence on the society we live in is that of the five films nominated for Best Picture of the Year, two dealt with the subject of understanding between the races. It was his work and his dedication that brought about the increasing awareness of all men that we must unite in compassion in order to survive. The lasting memorial that we of the motion picture community can build to Dr. King is to continue making films which celebrate the dignity of man, whatever his race or color 
or creed. The 40th Academy Awards were held on April 10th, 1968 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, and the event was hosted once again by the lovely Bob Hope. Originally scheduled for April 8th, the awards were postponed two days later due to the assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., which of course plays hand-in-hand with not only some of our nominees, but also our winner in the heat of the night. And this year, due to waning popularity of black and white films, best cinematography, art direction, and costume design previously divided into separate awards for color and monochrome films were merged into single categories. This was the first Oscars since 1948 to feature clips from the Best Picture nominees. This is also a year that marked the first and only time that three different films were nominated for the top five Oscars Picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. And those films are Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. An honorary Oscar this year was given out to Arthur Freed. It was presented for his distinguished service to the Academy and the production of six top-rated awards telecast. And the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award was given to Alfred Hitchcock, 16 films directed by Hitchcock received an Oscar nomination, though only five of those were assigned to him for Best Director. Uh, The clip is on YouTube of Hitchcock receiving this award, and it's very strange. Um, It's very quick. He's kind of, like, rushed out there, and I don't know if it was his health, because he walked, like, very, like, slowly, almost like penguin-like, kind of, like, waddling to the stage, and... (laughs) He, bar- he doesn't even get, like, even to the center of the microphone. He's just to the side of it after getting the award. He's just like, thank you. Indeed. So I don't know if he's, like, if that was a statement against the Academy, if that was just old Alfred Hitchcock. Like, I, I really don't know. But it-, it was a very fascinating clip. And it's kind of unfortunate that this uh, this powerhouse of filmmaking just truly great mind it doesn't really get the true recognition that from the oscars but i guess maybe you don't need it when you are that prolific of a director so i would have loved if he just walked up there and just said took you long enough and then walked away (laughs) simple as that yeah and plot twist big explosions Yeah, he gets up to the the podium and he's like, there is a bomb under everyone's seat in this auditorium. Except one of you has the key to them all. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And roll! (laughs) Best Best special visual effects went to L.B. Abbott for Dr. Doolittle. This is Abbott's first of four career Oscars, as he would go on to win for Tora 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 in 1972, The Poseidon Adventure in 1973, and Logan's Run in 1977. Best Film Editing went to In the Heat of the Night to Hal Ashby. This is Ashby's only career win out of three total nominations, and as John and I said at the way beginning of this podcast, this was my pick for the Worthies of Best Film Editing, and John, you were kind of hitting yourself in the butt being like oh i wish i picked that one for best yeah, that was such a good idea yeah and it's a it's a great choice for the past decade which then means this film has amazing editing and there's one moment that i didn't talk about in the film and that's right when they get to the plantation 
the way that we cut from the scene to the plantation immediately cuts to I don't know the name of the machine, the threader, this machine that oh, kind the, of gathers the cotton, the cotton, the cotton yeah, gin. yeah. That's so it's these big blades, and it's an it's a really extreme close up of the blades basically coming right towards the camera, and it's such a beautiful edit. Not only is it startling, where it's like, holy god, that was like so intense, and it's it's visceral because it's coming directly at you. I can imagine seeing that in a big screen, being very uh, kind of blown blown away by that visual, but it's also what is that visual, right? It's it's cotton being kind of mushed and melded and destroyed by this big tool. I think, again, beautiful visual that kind of goes hand in hand with our theme and our story here. And, of course, God bless Hal Ashby. That was beautiful, <laughs> amazing editing. Best sound effects went to John Pointer for The Dirty Dozen. Best sound went to In the Heat of the Night to Samuel Goldwyn Studios Sound Department. So this is, I found this to be odd. Uh, this is the first year since the sixth Academy Awards that the award went to a whole sound department instead of acknowledging at least one individual person. So for about like 34, you know, 34 years, it was like, yeah, we'll just give it to like the head of the sound department or like this person who actually worked on the movie like, and the sound department. But now like this year... And I think it's only this year, next year, where they went back to like just the sound department getting it. Um, I found it to be really strange. I don't know why uh, the so Oscars weird. do these things, but very strange indeed. Best cinematography went to Burnett Guffey for Bonnie and Clyde. This is Guffey's second and final career Oscar. He previously won for From Here to Eternity. Ben, this is one of those movies that I have seen maybe most of the scenes in it, but I've never seen it from front to end. Uh, this was the like classic film that we got shown in in college, and it was always bits and parts for directing, for writing, all, all always broken down. So I, weirdly enough, have never seen this movie. Have you seen Bonnie and Clyde, Ben? Yeah, this was one of those movies I saw in that uh, history class in college. So very odd that like you're watching it in, in, in college, the same school, you're watching it and it's being broken down, but you're not seeing the entirety. And I'm seeing the context of like, this movie came out in 67. It was very graphic and horrifying to have all this blood, <laughs> especially the ending. And um, yeah, then the cinematography like kicks ass. Uh, it's actually kind of funny that In the Heat of the Night is not nominated for this, but what are you going to do? It's kind of crazy. I I cannot express how much I love the cinematography for this movie. I... I've, the older I've gotten, the more obsessed I've gotten with close-ups and not even just my own like love for them and wanting to kind of design a film or photographs that are about extreme hyper-focused on really small objects. But this film loves the extreme close-up and it loves the close-up. And I just adore the way it f follows you know, Poitier's hands across the body, the way he picks up that little like bramble that kind of leads them to the plantation. Like it just focuses f like rack focuses from his eyes to the de like the piece that he's holding. Such beautiful cinematography. It's crazy that this wasn't nominated. Moving on to best art direction went to Camelot art direction by John Truscott and Edward Carrere. Set decoration by John W. Brown. This is Truscott, Carreras, and Brown's first Academy Award win. Best costume design went to John Truscott for Camelot. This is Truscott's second of two Oscars for the night. 
For the first time since the introduction of the Academy Award for Best Costume Design in 1948, Edith Head did not receive a nomination after tallying 30 nominations and 7 wins over the previous 18 years. So, let's all pour one out for Edith Head. She's still yeah. alive at this point, but uh, yeah, wasn't it, nominated. <laughs> I was like shocked that like I didn't even pick up on that, that she was nominated every single time. <laughs> That was probably a headline in Variety. I can see it now. Yeah. Like, Edith Head, not nominated. Yeah. Like, everyone in the industry just freaking out. I'm like, what did she do to someone? Who, who did you say, again, was the uh, president of Ampass uh, at this point? Uh, Gregory Peck, I think. Was. So, she definitely has beef with Peck. <laughs> <There's> something <laughs> happened with Gregory Peck I that mean. Edith Head was not nominated. Uh, there's a lot we we didn't even touch on. Uh, I hope <laughs> I hope that future Ben and future Ben who's editing this put that Gregory Peck intro in the intro, and uh, <laughs> I'll just comment it right now. It's it's like touching, you know, talking about Martin Luther King, but it's also a little bizarre some of the stuff that he says. But uh, thank you, future editing Ben, for putting that in. Anyways, moving on to best song, that one went to "Talk to the Animals" from Doctor Doolittle, music and lyrics by. Leslie Bercuse. In the 1960s and 70s, Bercuse enjoyed a fruitful partnership with Anthony Newley. They wrote the musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off in 1961, which was the basis for a 1966 film version. Also in collaboration with Newley, uh, Briscus wrote the show The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd uh, in 1965, and music for the film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 71, based on the children's book Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. For the latter, they received an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song Score. So let's take a listen to Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. And if you just stop to think of it, there's no doubt of it, I shall win a place in history. I can walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. <laughs> Wait, the Bear Necessities was nominated this year and that didn't win? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Casino Royale, too. How crazy is that? That the James Bond spoof movie from the 60s. <laughs> we're, we're talking Got about best song the Bear Necessities. Well, the first of all, I did not know that movie was that old. That kind of blows my mind. I thought that was a '90s film. That kind of that's nah. kind of tripping me out. <laughs> he just says, "Nah, nah, bruh." <laughs> well, it was one of those films that I watched with the Little Mermaid, with the Lion King. So to me, that was like, "Oh, this is maybe an '80s movie, like late '80s." That's crazy. That's kind of freaking me out right now. <laughs> Best original song score or adaption score went to Alfred Newman and Ken Darby for Camelot. This is Newman's ninth and final career Academy Award win. His nine Oscars are the most in the best score category, as well as the third most by any individual of all time. And he is behind Cedric Gibbons with 11 and Walt Disney with 26. This is Darby's third and final career Academy Award. Best original music score went to Thoroughly Modern Millie to Elmer Bernstein. This is Bernstein's only Academy Award win out of 14 total nominations. Best short subject cartoon went to The Box. 
best live action short subject went to A Place to Stand to Christopher Chapman and Cam McWhirt. Best documentary short subject went to Mark Harris and Trevor Greenwood for The Red Woods. Best documentary feature went to The Anderson Platoon. Best foreign language film went to Closely Watched Trains from Czechoslovakia. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to In the Heat of the Night, written by Sterling Silphant, based on the novel by John Ball. This is Silphant's only Academy Award win, and this was his only career nomination. So, Best Picture winner getting a Best Screenplay win goes hand-in-hand. Love to see that. Uh, And as we mentioned before, like this is a a great script. There's a lot of great dialogue, very snap, uh, snappy stuff happening. Um, John, what do you think about the script overall? Like, how does it compare to other best screenplays that we've seen? It's incredible. It's really, really, really incredible. It's definitely up there of the whole decade. Obviously, I still stick with the apartment, as you heard in the beginning of the episode here. But in the heat of the night, is is truly a fantastic script that is both very deep in its analysis of these characters and just extremely eye-opening, I think, for modern audiences to to kind of see this and experience a story. And experience a story that also includes abortion. You know, I talked about that in in Alfred uh, a couple episodes ago, or maybe even just the last episode. And that also includes abortion. But these are very, and that's a British film. So this is the first American film that I have seen, the earliest that I have seen that kind of directly mentions it, talking about where to go, how to pay for it. So it's not only pushing the boundaries of what we're experiencing with racial relationships, with women as well on screen. It's it's pushing the medium of film. It's a phenomenal script. Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen went to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner by William Rose. This is Rose's first and only Academy Award win, and he was nominated a total of four times in the screenwriting categories. Ben, this is such a funny year because we have Potier, who is in both Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and the Best Picture winner in the Heat of the Night, both very much about race relationships the very forefront of the films are about race relationships. Instead, we have more of a romantic relationship where we have a, a doctor, I believe he plays, a black man played by Poitier coming home and meeting his white girlfriend or fiance's family. Man, what a great movie. And it's a great movie in a very different way than In the Heat of the Night. If I had to pick between the two in particular, I would definitely choose In the Heat of the Night. I think Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is is what you would expect, I think, from a film that's about uh, race relationships. I think it's probably more digestible because it's not just about men. You know, I can't imagine many women going to In the Heat of the Night and enjoying it. You know, it's just a very men-centered film. It's very much about masculinity as much as it is about race. Um, but uh, let me ask you that question. Do you feel the same <laughs> way about In the Heat of the Night? Uh, yeah, it's a very manly film. I mean, then I just kind of want to joke and just be like, well, how many movies were they comfortable going to see? You know, yeah, yeah, that, that's a whole different topic you know, as well. It, but it's, uh, yeah, it's very, it's a much more manly film. Uh, it's very much about like men breaking, you know, getting past these like wall, these literal walls of racism and just, yeah, how, how to connect emotionally, which not many could. Yeah. And guess who coming guess who's coming to dinner is very much, you know, you're dating my daughter. I'm very racist played by Spencer Tracy. I think his last performance 
And he's a great performance from him as well, who's just so opposing and in your face. It's very much what you would expect, I think, from a, a release relation film in 1967. And I think it's probably more relatable just broadly because it's about relationships. Because you have that father-daughter thing, you can always get to a lot of like hard-hitting questions and really put your characters in hard places. But definitely a film you should check out. It's really wonderful and a hard performance I have to pick between Tibbs and his character and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Very difficult, but let's move on. Yeah, moving on to Best Supporting Actress. That one went to Estelle Parsons for Bonnie and Clyde as Blanche Barrow. This is Parsons' only Academy Award win and first of two nominations. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde was actually her second ever film role. And interestingly, the real Blanche Barrow weighed in on Parsons' performance. While Barrow had approved the depiction of her in the original script, she objected to the later rewrites at the film's release. She complained about Estelle Parsons' portrayal of her, saying, The film made me look like a screaming horse's ass. <laughs> uh, for those who haven't seen Bonnie and Clyde, I, I kind of agree with the real Blanche Barrow. But, John, moving on, take us away for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> Best Supporting Actor went to George Kennedy for... for cool hand luke as dragline this is kennedy's only oscar award win and nomination best actress went to katherine hepburn for guess who's coming to dinner as christina drayton this is hepburn's second academy award win out of four total she previously won for morning glory which is in 1933 at the sixth academy awards so it's a span of 34 years between her first and second academy awards Hepburn commented that the award for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was not just for her, but also to honor Spencer Tracy, who had died shortly after filming his last scene for the movie, and also her, I guess, partner. It's a very odd relationship because Spencer Tracy never got divorced from his first wife, but was openly with Catherine Hepburn for like 20, almost 30 years. So very interesting relationship, but don't really need to get too much into Hepburn right now. We've talked about her a bunch and this is only her second out of four. So we have two other times we get to talk about her. She's going to be back. Best actor went to Rod Steiger for in the heat of the night as police chief, Bill Gillespie. This is Steiger's first and only Academy award win out of three total nom- nominations outside of his Oscar winning role. He is also known for playing Charlie in on the waterfront from 1954 the Pawnbroker in 1964, and Dr. Zhivago, 1965. You know I had to throw in that Zhivago reference. In. <laughs> so, what an incredible performance. But there is the huge elephant in the room. We just gushed about both Rod Steiger, and we can definitely continue to talk about how amazing and incredible he is. He is truly wonderful and I think he gives a, a a performance that's so loud and in your face but then can turn on a dime just like Poitier can and be so dramatic and and subtle and I love his just loud chewing gum his his design of his character is just phenomenal but there's just such a huge elephant in the room is that where is where's Poitier yeah where is he so I read um I, I wanted that question too when I first watched the movie because, you know, when I watch the movie and you hear Academy Award winner Sidney Poitier, you're thinking, oh, that, that's the movie he won for, obviously, in the heat of the night. But it's not. He won for Lilies of the Field uh, four years earlier. 
And some of the um, reasons why I think why people think that he wasn't nominated was because he kind of split the vote. He had In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and a movie To Serve With Love, which was very popular for audiences. And it's possible that uh, Oscar voters were split on which one to uh, nominate him for, which one to recognize him for. It's a very weird system, and, and sometimes it falls out that way, where if you have, you're too good, you have too many movies out, where it actually may hurt you. So I think that's kind of like the most logical reason why he didn't get nominated. I mean, yeah, we can pontificate and be like, oh, it's racist. They didn't want him to win, blah, 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 blah. I, I just think that it just, the math of it just didn't work out for him versus these other people. I mean, he's, th- this is a pretty stacked category. I mean, think, look at the names. out you know, Rod Steiger. They have also Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde. You have Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, and then Spencer Tracy for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a pretty stacked category this year. Um, and in all honesty, you may be looking at it and going, should Dustin Hoffman have one? Should Paul Newman have one? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot, I think, to take from that. But Rod Steiger gives a great performance. Absolutely great. I mean, and I loved him in On the Waterfront and in Dr. Zhivago. He's... A great actor. I know upon looking up and researching him, some people thought his method acting was kind of bullshit, that he kind of went a little too far with stuff. Yeah. And he was a little too gruff, a little too overbearing. He would f- fuck up people's lines, fuck up his own lines because he wanted to be more in the moment about it. But he's a great actor. And if he needs mm-hmm. to chew gum and speak in a southern accent for a year to get into this movie, let him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not wrong, man. You're not wrong. Paul Newman is fantastic spencer tracy i already said he's just so great as this like racist dad that has the softer side to him that you kind of have to break him down to get to and dustin hoffman i mean what an incredible performance i mean the graduate is one of my favorite movies of all time so it's going to be very hard moving forward into best director and specifically best picture yeah so let's jump into best director so best director went to Mike Nichols for The Graduate. The Graduate became the seventh film to win Best Director and nothing else. And it was the last film until the 94th Academy Awards, which was just last year, when Jane Campion won Best Director for Power of the Dog. So Power of the Dog got like 12 nominations. I forget how many of The Graduate got. We've got a high amount and only walked away with one award. Odd. It, it happens sometimes, but it's pretty odd. But Nichols, this is his only career win out of five total nominations between Best Picture and Director. In 2001, Nichols would become an EGOT winner for his work on the TV drama Wit. And in total, Nichols' films received 43 Oscar nom- nominations and won seven of them. So he got his due. Uh, he wins the award this year. I mean, he's looked at as one of, like in the 60s, like he kind of like turned cinema around. And I looked up like the youngest winners for Best Director. And he doesn't fall off in the top 10, but he was like 37 at the time of winning this. Wow. So it's pretty, it's very young uh, when you look at wow. it. I mean, the youngest is Damien Chazelle at 32. So there's been some guys in between. But yeah, Mike Nichols really made a stamp. It made a stamp really quick in the film industry. So crazy. Unbelievable. But let's move on to the best picture of 1967. And that is. In the Heat of the Night, from producer Walter Mirisch. This is Mirisch's only Academy Award win, but he would later receive the Irving G. Thalberg Award in 1978 
and the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award in 1983. So, Ben, as you always do, take it away and give me them stats. Oh, I'll give you the stats. So, In the Heat of the Night has a 94% rating on Rotten Tomato with an average rating of 8.31. The top critic percentage is a 100%. They all gave it a fresh rating of an average rating of 8.4. And again, I just love to point out, the number of top critic reviews that Rotten Tomatoes counts is just 11. So take that for what you will. The audience score is a 92% with a 4.21 average rating, which is out of 5. IMDb gives it a 7.9. For context, that's the highest since Lords of Arabia. So for a good five years, there wasn't any movies that got higher than that. So 7.9 is a very high score. Metacritic gives it a 75 uh, I won five total Oscars out of seven nominations. And yeah, there's a lot, I think, to break down. But John, what did you give In the Heat of the Night? I gave In the Heat of the Night a 92 out of 100, which is very high. Very, very high for me. I Lawrence Arabia is also a 92. Sound of Music is a 90. The Apartment, as I mentioned, is 100, and Bridge on the River Kwai, 97. So, this is a very high rating for me, and I think I really examined why. I think this film is such a perfect balance of not only story and plot, as I spoke about, but also such a great and structural film to just show you how to make something that's so potent, something that's a topic that's so on the nose and something that Americans deal with every single day that black people still in the United States in 2023 still have to deal with being called boy or microaggressions or just blatant racism online or in public. And this film does such a great job of not pandering. I think you could maybe look at Rod Steiger's win as like you know, just give it to the sympathetic white guy that learns his lesson to not be racist, right? I think you can reduce it to something that that specific, but you can also discredit how great of his how great his performance is. And I don't think you can also reduce this film down to just being about, oh, that film about race, because it's just so much more than that. As we described, it's about the North and South. It's about the the wage disparity between the North and the South, the difference between that which is still so prevalent in the United States just and it's only probably gotten even worse that the wage disparity and the film just so much to not only describe what it's like to be an American on on both sides to be to have people that you know that are racist to have people that you know that are black in your life or be black yourself and experience some of the things that Tibbs does a professional cop who just should be respected and completely adored but this film just does such a great job of balancing all of these things and still being an interesting story, a murder who done it. And while that kind of stumbles at times like we described, I think this is a truly an amazing film and I think it's a film that like I would recommend everyone to watch and especially every American to watch. Yeah, I agree with that last sentiment that this is a movie that everybody should watch. It's a truly like a, a very good movie. It's it's great. It's it does so much. It talks about so much. It points out so much. And, uh, it's a, it's definitely a movie that I enjoy like getting to go back and see as it's quick. It goes by very quickly for an hour, 50 minutes. It's very like go, 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 go from start to end. And, uh, it feels like a very complete story that they pack a lot into with all of that. My score for in the heat of the night is an 87, a little lower than I think maybe 
I would have even done with like some of these older, you know, past movies. Like I felt like I was very gracious with some movies where I was like giving them more points, but I just took points away because I like the cinematography, but I also don't love the graininess and the mu- and the muddiness. I think that there could have been more. There could have been. I think that well, if, I, I I I know there's reasons for it. Well, let me let me let me cut you off first and say uh, something. Okay. Where did you watch the movie? Let me first establish. I that. watched it on my TV. Well, you watched it on Amazon Prime though, as well, because it's on yeah. Amazon Prime, yeah. right? Yeah. Or did you buy it off of Apple? No, I watched it on Amazon Prime. So here's the thing, I think, and I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I want to establish this as well because I think this is important information to have. That in the heat was actually just recently, this past year, 2022, was released with a new 4K digital restoration of it. We have not seen that either of us because you have to specifically buy the Blu-ray. Uh, from Criterion, and that's a whole nother topic in itself. I should have bought it now, looking back <laughs> retrospectively. But I think this film is going to look a lot better with that restoration. I think a lot of your issues, which I agree with, the muddiness, the kind of lack of contrast in some daylight scenes, like the weird kind of vibe to some of the shots, the TV-ish vibe to it, I think it would look a lot better in this new restoration. So I'm just saying that. It, I'll let you continue. Yeah, Sorry. it might. But I'm not you know i still i've seen it in other formats like still like i've i've seen it on a bigger screen you know with like you know i i don't know either way i still just but you have not seen the new restoration okay well which don't discredit it it's a that's a big that's a big thing it could drastically change the way this it movie could looks. it could or it could just be a very nice high definition of some of the close-up shots and then some of the other shots are still muddy it's still washed out like I don't know. I I get what you're saying, but I'm still gonna. I still think that that's a more design choice than anything else. Um, that they that they let it be, and I think that had to do more with like shooting it at night. That they they let some of the exposure go different ways. I think they're trying to capture a certain sense and feel, which is fine. It just doesn't really work for me. Um, again, like and then the whole like mystery where I love mysteries. I want to see like that develop and then kind of it's like kind of anticlimactic at the end it's kind of rushed at the ending and i get like it's more about the relationship but for something for a mystery i would have wanted more so i'm just taking off like some points for all that um but otherwise yeah it's a great movie 87 is not a to me that's not a bad rating at all it's a very good uh rating to get so john our average through 40 movies you are averaging a 73.4 and I'm averaging 76.1 just to like use Rotten Tomatoes, which everyone uses, and it's not the number to use, but like the average Rotten Tomatoes percentage is 86.5 of the 40 movies. So we are below that, but I think we're a lot more critical of uh, some other movies that Rotten Tomatoes is blindly giving good ratings to, and that's because it's a shit website. That's a whole other podcast that I could talk for a good amount but anyways john um i gotta ask you one more question is in the heat of the night worthy of the best picture award of 1967 it absolutely is this is a interesting conversation because i think personally for me if i were to go what do i want to watch tonight the graduate or in the heat of the night i'm probably going to pick the graduate the graduate is one of my favorite movies of all time i think it captures the feeling of post-graduation of youth being lost not knowing what to do with your life and it's just phenomenal it's beautiful to look at it's such a great story such amazing performances i would probably watch the graduate 
over in the heat of the night. But what film is so significant for 1967 for striking lightning, for breaking the ice, as I started off this podcast saying? It's definitely in the heat of the night. And it deserves, like I said, to be watched by everyone. It's something that I'm so happy that Criterion restored this. I think everyone should own this and be able to watch this. And I think it would drastically change not just your life, but I think it will just... It's a film that I think can still open your mind and and change your opinion and and see different things in people and and allow you to take the time to just not judge someone right away. You know, the classic saying, don't judge the book by its cover. I think that it's a beautiful film and and a great example of an American film that really shows the dark side of America and does it in a way that's not just, you know, just saying... And, and making it so simple and, and boxing it up in a, a simple digestible package. This film questions you as a viewer and I think it does a lot for cinema and I think it does a lot for cinema in the United States in particular. But Ben, after that long rant, is In the Heat of the Night worthy? Yeah. I think it's pretty simple. <laughs> it, it just is. It's worthy. It has great lines, great acting in it, great tension. Uh, we said before that every American should watch this movie. It feels, uh, it feels like it should be more monumental. It feels like it should be more in your face of like great American films in the heat of the night, but it's not. And I don't know if that's because people do jump towards. And I, and I, again, like I hate that even my mind jumped to it, but I think that shows that like where a lot of other people's could, it's like, Oh, it's just another buddy cop kind of movie. It's just too basic of a, of a, movie about racism it's like it's one of the first it's a one of the most popular first ones to come out so maybe you should listen to that maybe you know maybe that's important to like use that as the jumping off point not saying it's the oh watch this movie you understand racism no but it's a it's a spectrum of learning and this is probably a very good place to start to understand to get a feeling to understand black anger you know black feelings you know how how they interact within the world and how they have to not react and and just be to not hurt themselves more so it, there's a lot a lot in there to unpack from just that standpoint so it's a great movie totally worthy of best picture award uh very happy it won and it's just like a, a crazy year for it to be part of and it still stood out you know this movie could have been buried if the graduate if the graduate won all these awards no one would ever be talking about in the heat of the night wouldn't even <laughs> go on people's radars no so it shows yeah, exactly that, right yeah and and the thing is like it's not like the academy knew that martin luther king was going to get shot you know the week of the oscars when they voted for it they, this was voted on well before you know so it's like it's not like they knew that and they chose like in the heat of the night because the mlk died no they just they chose it because they saw the significance of it it's just unfortunate timing and an unfortunate circumstance where mlk's death was surrounded by it so uh, it makes it more poignant. Uh, yeah, I've I've had a great time talking about this movie, talking about this year in Oscars, the podcast just in general. So, John, is there any final thoughts on the 40th Oscars in the heat of the night? Worthy. Floor is yours. You take care. You hear? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is, is Worthy. worthy. And this is worthy. And this is worthy. And this is worthy. And this is worthy. (laughs) And this is worthy.
Oh, that's great. Wow. Yeah, I got why, why don't you talk like that more? You got to do your radio voice like that. Must be an ending to it all. But hold on, hold it won't be long. Just you be strong, and it'll be alright. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.